And then, uh, are you ready? Will you work yeah, for me? Ready? Is this on? Yes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please get seated. We're going to get started in just a moment. Welcome, everybody, to our session on uh, best practices for dealing with self-represented litigants. I'm very excited about this. I, I actually am convinced that we're on the brink of a small revolution here, uh, moving away, uh, deliberately moving away from the adversarial paradigm that all of us that went to law school are addicted to and uh, taking on a different paradigm for making certain that self-represented litigants have justice provided to them. We're very, very pleased that we'll start this session with someone who probably doesn't need an introduction. Um, but will you help join me in welcoming the Chief Justice of the State of Arizona, the Honorable Scott Bayes. Well, good morning, and thank you for that welcome, and Judge McMurray, thank you for inviting me to speak this morning. This is a topic that I think is vitally important, not only for our justice courts, but for all the courts in Arizona. Um, I, for that reason, uh, applaud the people who organized the program, uh, people who worked on putting together the best practices, the faculty, and we have great group of speakers over the course of the morning, and, and all of you for your interest and for your attention. The justice courts in Arizona are, for many people, the face of our judiciary. Last year, in the justice courts here just in Maricopa County, we terminated more than 346,000 cases. And in the majority of those cases, as you well know, at least one side was self-represented. So you are on the front lines of, of recognizing the challenges we face in our courts of meaningfully affording access to justice to a population that is very diverse, that as compared to most other states in our country has a large number of people who are impoverished, and a large number of people for whom English is not their primary language. And, and that makes all the greater the importance of our making sure that our courts are accessible to the communities that we serve. Another reason that is vitally important is the success of our judiciary, the maintenance of an independent judicial system, depends long term on the confidence of the public. And public confidence depends, of course, on people thinking that they've been afforded justice when they're involved in court proceedings. It's important in order to assure compliance with our rules. It's important to ensure long-term support for a justice system based on the rule of law. And that's why I said earlier that the topic that you're taking up, I think, is vitally important. Now, all of us who are regularly involved in the court system, we focus understandably on achieving fair outcomes. In fact, I think a lot of people who are in the courts, they are asked, what's the most important thing that you can do in terms of your decision-making? Many people would probably say, well, I need to reach the outcome that is just, the outcome that is fair. 
And we think of that in terms of reaching a conclusion, whatever the ruling, that is consistent with the applicable law and the relevant facts, and is made irrespective of characteristics of the parties that might be irrelevant. Doesn't matter whether you might like or dislike a particular litigant before you, you make the decision that reflects the facts and the law. Interestingly, though, if you went to people outside the justice system, and this has been confirmed in study after study, they would say the fairness of the process is as important as the fairness of the outcome. And in many circumstances, it might be more important. And that's true across a vast realm of human behavior. We think about it. It's true in contexts that range from disciplining children to making decisions to terminate or promote employees. And it is vitally true in the context of court proceedings. So if you ignore everything else I've said, I hope you will remember that fairness process is as important for what we do as the fairness of outcomes. And for the parties who appear before us, it often would be the most important aspect of their interaction with the court system. Now, there is some good news and some bad news about our courts around the country and about our courts here in Arizona. Last year, the National Center for State Courts released the results of a survey of 1,000 voters across the United States. It's a statistically validated survey. And in some respects, it was very encouraging because as compared to survey results from two years earlier, the respondents gave more favorable responses with respect to the fairness and impartiality of the courts, whether courts provide good customer service, whether we provide equal justice to all, uh, whether judges and others in the court system are hardworking. So that's good news. Similarly, as compared with the 2012 survey, the results reflected um, more positive responses with respect to various procedural fairness attributes, things like whether people were treated with dignity and respect, whether the decisions were unbiased, whether the uh, judicial officer listened carefully to those appearing before them. Positive developments on every front. And if you look at things like the court tools surveys here in Maricopa County, we similarly get pretty good marks. But here's what troubles me about this study. If you look at those who actually had interaction with the courts, the positive responses drop. Those who say that courts treat people with dignity and respect, it's a lower percentage for those who've actually been involved in court proceedings. Similarly, the percentage who say that the decisions are unbiased or that people were listened to by those before whom they appeared. So this is a reminder that we need to give attention to whether those who appear on our courts come away feeling like justice has been done, and not only to whether the outcome has been fair in a particular case. Now, the best practices that you're going to talk about today speak directly to that issue. And they reflect a lot of wisdom 
that's been acquired through studies over recent years about what really matters in terms of process fairness. And it can be broken down pretty simply. It's, it's usually described in terms of three or four elements. I'm going to quote from a article, an article by Joel Brockman, who's actually in the Harvard Business Review. He categorizes the elements of process fairness in terms of three areas. Um, the three drivers being, first in his mind, how much input people believe they have in the decision-making process. Are their opinions requested and given serious consideration? And it's easy to imagine as you listen to these how you can think about this, as I said, in realms that range from disciplining children to making a decision whether or not to promote a particular employee. But the application in the judicial context, I think, is all more self-evident. The second driver that Brockner identifies is how decisions are perceived to be made. And here the perception is as important as the substance. Do people see decisions being made consistently? Are they based on accurate information? Can mistakes be corrected? Are the biases of the decision maker minimized? Is ample advance notice given? And is the decision process transparent? Third is how decision makers in fact behave. Do they explain why the decision was made? Do they treat people respectfully? Actively listening to their concerns and empathizing with their points of view. Now, if you're familiar with the work of Tom Taylor, a researcher, a social psychologist who studied why people um, comply with court decisions and what their perceptions are of how judicial decisions are made, you probably recognize that Tyler has a four-category uh, approach, but it, it substantively overlaps with this. Because Tyler talks about whether people have voice, whether they have an opportunity for their views to be heard in the decision-making process, whether the process has neutrality, that's similar to the, the consistency and transparency that Brockner talks about. Whether people are treated with respect, and whether the decision maker has earned trust, and that relates to whether people have um, the perception that their views have been considered in the decision making process, and the person who's deciding cares about hearing those views and has taken them into account before making a choice. Now, as I said, the best practices reflect these basic principles and the concern to give attention to process fairness in our decision making. That you are here today reflects that the leadership of the Justice Courts and Maricopa County Superior Court recognizes how important the best practices are in the work that you do. Um, I'm delighted to be here and in, in recognition of the importance of the adoption of the best practices in this program, I'm delighted that there's a nice coincidence because I can announce that one of this year's Strategic Agenda Awards, something that we do every year to recognize efforts that have contributed significantly to the different elements of the court's five-part strategic agenda. One of the awards for this year is um, being given to Judge Stephen McMurray, uh, Judge Gerald Williams, and Charlie Adderley, Judicial Education Officer, in recognition of their work 
on the best practices in this program. It's the award that we're getting. You know, this, this effort relates to several aspects of the strategic agenda. Promoting access to justice, improving court processes, enhancing professionalism, and, and the award has, has been given for enhancing professionalism. I should say, I don't decide who gets the award. There is an eight-person committee uh, from the Arizona Judicial Council, six judges from all over the state, and a couple of public members, and they look at various um, candidates, and, and they just, within the last week or so, decided uh, who would receive the awards, and these would be given at the court's annual statewide leadership conference um, next fall. So I, I join others in congratulating the recipients. So you're about to hear um, part of what is an award-winning program from outstanding presenters on vitally important So I hope you enjoy the session today, and I thank you for all of your work and helping you advance justice in Arizona. And before the Chief Justice leaves, we're actually going to take a brief uh, break from our program, and I'd like to bring Paul Julian up. Once he's dressed. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much. I didn't know about the award. That's, that, that's just wonderful. Uh, this group, uh, this is really a first, and so congratulations to the folks who are putting this together. Um, as you all know, we have a three-week program of new judge orientation because I think everybody in here has been through it. And uh, at the end of our last week of the program in 2015, Judge Osterfeld was on, uh, on duty, official military duty, and he was not there for the presentation of the final certificate. And Chief Justice Bales has offered to give that certificate to him today. But Judge Osterfeld, come on up. Okay, she wants a picture, guys. <laughs> Thank you, Justice Fields. Um, our next speaker um, is um, my personal fearless leader, uh, but also I, I, I've been very delighted to find out that I can think of her also as a co-conspirator in this project we've got of um, departing from the adversarial paradigm. She has been a pioneer in assisting self-represented litigants, especially in areas like um, dissolution of marriage uh, and other areas in superior court uh, in which you've got to move past the traditional role of the judge in order to help citizens obtain justice in their programs. Um, so would you join me now in welcoming the presiding judge of the Maricopa County Superior Court, the Honorable Janet Carter.
All right. Unlike Justice Bales, I'm going to speak from a seating position, and I'm going to use notes. So <laughs> that's why I'm at the trial court level. So uh, Justice Phelps talked about how important it is to have procedural fairness in your system and how important it is to make sure that the litigants feel that they have been heard and uh, have had access to justice. And so what I want to talk about for a few minutes is what we can do to make that happen, make that a reality in the courts. And the justice courts um, hear far more cases where one or more party is unrepresented than we do in the Superior Court. But I just wanted to put this up to show you that we do feel your pain. Uh, we have a lot of unrepresented litigants appear in our courts, primarily in the family court and probate areas. And you'll see the order of protection, the uh, number of self-represented litigants is, is basically off the charts. That's, part of our family court, so I consider that part of the family court. But I'd say over 80, between 80 and 85 percent of our family court cases involve at least one side that's unrepresented. So uh, I think it's why uh, family court can be one of the more challenging assignments for our judges. Because what do you do when they're unrepresented? What can you do? What should you do to make sure that they leave the courtroom with the results that are correct under the law and that they've had the opportunity to be heard and have been afforded access to justice. For years, uh, we've all heard this quote uh, that basically boils down to a self-represented litigant is entitled to no more consideration than if he had been represented by counsels, held to the same standard, supposed to know the same procedures, the same law, has the same notice of statutes and local rules as would be attributed to an attorney. And, and I can't imagine anyone sitting in this room has not heard an attorney give you this quote. I, I, I believe that it's, it's required to be a family law attorney that you have memorized this so that when you show up in the courtroom with a self-represented litigant, it's the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Uh, it's kind of like when they file motions for summary judgment and they spend the whole first page telling you what the standard is for a motion for summary judgment. Um, and, and yes, there is case law that says this, but the case law, this is from a 1983 decision, the case law subsequent to this has certainly walked away from this. And, and I believe that under our current state of law, and you know, we're all required to follow those appellate decisions even when we know they've got it wrong, but we're still required to follow them. Um, the appellate decisions have walked away from this and certainly our code of ethics has walked away from this. So I, I believe that this is no longer the proper approach to take if you are presiding over a case involving a self-represented litigant. The first instance we had where they started walking away from it was in the White case, and it admittedly was in the dissent, but you saw uh, Judge Lineford recognize that courts do not treat a litigant fairly when they insist that the litigant, unaided and unable to obtain the services of a lawyer, negotiate a thicket of legal formalities at peril of losing his or her right to be heard. Such a practice manifestly excludes the poor and the unpopular who may be unable to obtain counsel uh, and, and obtain access to justice. 
So clearly they're walking away from the principle that you as a self-represented litigant are held to the same standard and we're going to treat you the same as if you were an attorney. If you choose to represent yourself, that is the peril and the risk that you undertake. And we have to recognize that the self-represented litigants who appear in front of us are not self-represented in the vast majority of situations by choice. They are self-represented because they have no other option. They can't afford an attorney. And, and there's been much talk about how Washington has this program now where I call it paralegals on steroids, where they kind of uh, are a little bit more than a paralegal but less than an attorney and they can represent clients and should Arizona have such a program. And, and what I like to point out to people is uh, putting aside whether we should or should not have that, it's not going to help our self-represented litigants. Because it's not like they can afford $200 an hour, but they can't afford $500 an hour. They can't afford $200 an hour. They can't afford $150 an hour. And these paralegals on steroids, they're in here as their profession. They're not doing this for free. They are, this is their livelihood. So they're going to charge for this service. And many of the people we see are not going to be able to afford them any more than they can afford it. <coughs> Uh, in, in the materials, there's additional quotes uh, from that case, from the dissent. But then you move to the uh, Finley versus Lewis case, which is a 1991 appellate decision. And uh, this is not in the dissent. Now, they're quoting from another case, but it's in, in the Court of Appeals decision. And there the Court of Appeals says, again, not in the dissent, meaningful access to the courts imposes an obligation on the part of the court to make reasonable allowances to protect pro se litigants from inadvertent forfeiture of important rights because of their lack of legal training. That right should not be impaired by harsh application of technical rules. I believe this is the current state of the law. So when the attorneys in your courts who are up against a self-represented litigant want to cite to you from the 19 whatever it was, 83, 81 decision, the one that uh, you hear every day in your courts, the Copper State Man versus Sagio, I would ask them, well, what about Finley versus Lewis? And see if they're prepared to respond to that. Now, I spoke at the State Bar Conference on access to justice issues, and I had someone from the audience say, well, if you're there and you're helping out an unrepresented litigant to, and you're not providing the same assistance to, assistance to the party who's represented, you're really creating an unlevel playing field, an uneven playing field. And my response was, when I have an individual in front of me who's got a college degree and a postgraduate degree from an accredited law school, and an individual on the other side who doesn't even have a high school education, there is no level playing field. What I'm trying to do is create the level playing field. It's no different than if I want to go out and play golf against Jordan Spieth. That's not a level playing field. I've probably played golf far more years than he has. <laughs> but there's no level playing field there. So how do you level the playing field? You put me on a different set of tees. You put my handicap into play. You make him give me at least two shots on every hole. <laughs> start having a level playing field but putting me up against someone who that's their livelihood that's not the level playing field so I don't feel like we are creating an unlevel playing field when we help self-represented litigants 
I feel that what we are doing is helping to create that level playing field. And as I said, it's not only the case law that recognizes the need to provide assistance, it's also our code of ethics. Uh, so if you look at Rule 2.6, ensuring the right to be heard from our Arizona Code of Judicial Conduct, it says that a judge shall accord to every person who has a legal interest in a proceeding or that person's lawyer the right to be heard according to the law. And the comment specifically addresses uh, that these, their substantive rights could only be protected if their right to be heard is observed. So these litigants have a right to be heard. They deserve assistance in assuring that their right to be heard is recognized in our courtrooms. Uh, the Rule 2.2 Impartiality and Fairness, a judge shall uphold and apply the law and shall perform all duties of judicial office fairly and impartially. And the, again, the comment recognizes it's not a violation of this rule for a judge to make reasonable accommodations to ensure self-represented litigants the opportunity to have their matters fairly heard. So basically it boils down to, and there's some more quotes in here, uh, uh, that deal with the need to make sure that self-represented litigants have access to justice. So it boils down to what can you do? What should you do? What can you ethically do to make sure that the facts and law are before you without being or being perceived as non-neutral? So how far can you go with the self-represented litigant? You know, the viewpoint I've always taken, and I discussed it at our judicial conference this year, and I know some of you were there, is if I have litigants who leave my courtroom and believe that they have received, well, they have received the rights that they're entitled to under the law, I don't know how any side can leave and say I was treated unfairly. If I got what I was entitled to under the law, how was I treated unfairly? And so that's, that should be our objective. So if you have self-represented litigants in front of you, and I know you're going to get scenarios this afternoon uh, that perhaps um, have missed an element, I, I have no problem asking them, do you have any evidence on this issue? You know, this is one of the elements you have to prove to me. Do you have any evidence you want to give me on this issue? There are articles in your materials that I think are very good articles, and they talk about <coughs> techniques you can use to uh, um, Help assure. Are the techniques coming? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh no. There. Oh, one at a time. There you go. Uh, to assure that your self-represented litigants have access to justice, and one of them they talk about is uh, framing the subject matter of the hearing. You know, and I'm going to give you analogies that I used in family court cases because uh, those are the types of cases that I dealt with that had extensive representation. Uh, or lack of representation by lawyers and self-represented litigants. And so typically if I've got parties in front of me and it's perhaps their first hearing in front of me, I'm going to try to explain to them at the outset what's going to happen at this hearing, whether they're both unrepresented or only one's represented. The purpose of this hearing, we're going to do a resolution management conference. The purpose of this hearing is to determine have you reached any agreements. If you haven't reached any agreements, then we're going to set this for a trial where you're going to present your evidence to me. If you can't reach agreements here today, I, I can't hear conflicting testimony and make a ruling. I'm not allowed to do that under the law. So all we can really talk about is if we can reach any agreements here today. 
So let's talk about what the issues are in your case. And then I would go through what the issues are going to be in their case, depending upon whether it's a case with children or without children. Is it a paternity case or is it a divorce case? So I would identify the issues. And as I identify them, I kind of go over what the law is on each of these issues. We're going to talk about legal decision making. The law encourages both parents to be actively involved in their children's lives unless there's a reason why they shouldn't be. One reason might be substance abuse. One reason might be criminal convictions. We can talk about those, but that's where we start at. Here's what legal decision making is. Who's going to make the primary decisions involving your child? Medical, educational, religious, personal care decisions. These are the significant decisions. We're not going to decide whether the kid wears khakis or blue jeans to school, whether it's a pigtail or a ponytail, whether it's a hot dog or a hamburger. We're talking about major decisions. So I would try to explain to them each of the areas and what the law is that's going to apply to those areas. Uh, and, and that goes along with explaining the process that will be followed. Like I said, I'll tell them at the beginning. This is not a, an evidentiary hearing. All I can do at this hearing is see if we have agreements. If we don't, then I'll set it for an evidentiary hearing and I'll work with you to come up with a date and time that works on your schedule. Eliciting the needed information from the litigants. So oftentimes after I've gone through with them, for example, what each of the, what each of the um, issues are going to be in their case, I'll start with, well, okay, let's start with legal decision making. Now I had a vested interest in starting with legal decision making because there's 23 factors I got to go through one by one by one if they can't reach an agreement on legal decision making. If I can get an agreement on legal decision making, I don't have to go through those factors. So I want to try to get an agreement on legal decision making if I can. So I'd start with that. And then I would turn to each one. Whoever filed the petition for dissolution, let's say it was mom, I'd turn to her and say, mom, you know, what do you think? How about joint legal decision making? Yeah. Where, where you both work together to reach, reach decisions. Is that acceptable to you? And, and then maybe she'd say, yeah, I can live with that. Dad, is that acceptable to you? Well, no, I want so. Well, Dad, tell me why you want so. Tell me why you think that would be better for your child. Because everything here we're going to do in the best interest of your child. So tell me why that's better. So I would try to engage them and get them going in the discussion. If push comes to shove, maybe I'd try to get temporary orders in place. Well, why don't we try this temporarily and, and see how it works out. And if it's not working out at the trial, we can look at adjustment. But are you willing to give it a try? Are you willing to at least give it a shot for a couple of months and see how that goes? So, you know, I tried to work with them in, in more of an engaging uh, uh, format rather than tell me what your position is, tell me what your position is, okay, you don't have an agreement, I'll see you in six months. Oftentimes, you can reach agreements, particularly once they understand what the law is. Um, you know, like, particularly if you're talking about dividing uh, assets in family court or dividing debt because uh, it's divided without regard to fault. So they want to come in and tell you everything she did that was terrible, and they want to come in and tell you everything he did that was terrible. And you can kind of walk them away from that. Well, I understand how you feel, but under the law, i got to decide this without regard to fault. And, and I would expect that you want your judge to decide things under the law, don't you? And, and get some buy-in on it and, and kind of spoon-feed them down that road. And it helps keep them focused. Again, involving the litigants in the decision-making. What do you want? Tell me why you want it. Tell me why you think that's in the best interest of your child. 
and, and I know I'm using family court, which you don't do, but you can use the same techniques and mechanisms in your eviction cases, in your cases that uh, have the self-represented litigants. Uh, they will feel that they've had the opportunity to be heard, the right to be heard, they will have had procedural fairness if you engage them in the process. Now they may say a lot of things that you know aren't going to amount to a hill of beans in your decision, but if they have had the opportunity to vent that out and feel like they've been heard, and you can explain to them why under the law that may not work, they're going to leave much happier than if you just cut them off at the knees and say, not going to hear that, let's move on. Articulating the decision from the bench. Um, this is recognized as a best practice. Um, I, I, it depends on who I have in front of me, whether I go down this path or not. If I have someone that I know is going to go ballistic when I rule, uh, or is now going to want to re-argue everything, I'm probably not going to rule from the bench. I may have articulated to them what the law requires, uh, but my final ruling may not may come later in an under-advisement. Uh, just because uh, if I've gotten them calmed down a little bit, I don't want to uh, uh, rile them back up again uh, and, and have them leaving the courtroom yelling at each other or yelling at me. So uh, you, you kind of have to play it by ear, I think, on that one and, and read your audience. If you have someone that's working with you, reaching agreements, it's easy to say. And at the end, I always sum up, because we, had, we would do a Rule 69 on the record where we get them to avow that uh, they're doing this on their own free will. And, and uh, one of the scariest questions you have to ask them is, has anyone coerced you to do this? Because you're sitting there hoping they don't say, well, yeah, you did. Uh, so you're, you're kind of sitting there saying, oh, please don't say me, please don't say me. Um, you know, so we have to do that at the end. But otherwise, and, and even if we didn't have to do that, I, I always sum up for them. And now here's the agreements we've reached. We, we've agreed that we're going to have joint legal decision making and you're going to talk to each other and work with each other. We've agreed to that, right, Mom? Yeah, right, Dad? Yeah. And here's the parenting plan we put in place. We've agreed to do this and this and this. Right, Mom? Yeah. Right, Dad? Yeah. So you kind of get the buy-in, and then they leave the courtroom knowing what's expected of them. Explaining your decision and summarizing the terms. I kind of just went over that with you. That's what I try to do at the end. Maybe not explaining my decision as much as just making sure that they understand what their obligations are when they leave the courtroom. You know, we're going to come back on this date and you're going to bring your evidence. You, you understand that, yes. And you've got to bring to me everything you want me to consider at this hearing. Whether it's bank statements or pictures or recordings, you need to bring these with you. You understand that? Yes. And you need to give copies to the other side. You've got to give them so many days in advance. So I kind of walk them through it and spoon feed them the information. Anticipating resolving issues with compliance. Uh, you know, are, are there going to be any issues if we do the exchanges this way? Uh, is this going to create any problems? Uh, because sometimes you'll find that there may be issues, but because you have the black robe on and because you're sitting up there higher than they are, they're, they're, they don't want to tell you about it. But if you flat out ask them, then you might find out about it. But otherwise, they're like, oh, maybe this is a stupid question. Maybe I shouldn't be asking this. 
So you, you kind of want to encourage them to get that out there. Providing the written order at the close of the hearing, I do not uh, typically do that uh, in family court just because it's uh, right now, uh, I cannot get that done. If they wanted to sit and wait, they could certainly do it, but they'd be sitting there for four or five hours probably because I'm going into another hearing and I don't have staff to create that written order. But it is important that uh, whatever you provide them in writing be written in a way that they can understand it and be specific. Because if it's not, they're, they're going to find that loophole or they're going to be confused. Well, it says mom gets the child on Mother's Day. But what time do I have to give the child to mom on Mother's Day? It doesn't say what time. So is it noon? Is it 8 o'clock in the morning? You need to have the specificity in there for them to understand. Setting, setting the litigant expectations for the next steps, I kind of went over that with you when I explained to them what's going to happen at the next hearing, what do you need to bring, what do you need to do before that next hearing. Now. I'm not claiming that I have any kind of special talents and I do not delude myself into believing that they leave my courtroom understanding everything I've said. I think they nod along sometimes just because they know they're supposed to say yes and then they leave the courtroom and say, what the heck did you say and what am I supposed to do? So that's why I try to make sure the written order is there. But, you know, it's kind of like the infomercial mentality. The more times you say it, the more times you say that phone number, the more times, the greater the likelihood they're going to remember it. So the more times you say it to them, explain it to them, the better likelihood they're going to remember it. Effective use of nonverbal communications. You know, guys, you're on your own on this one. I am not good at this at all because all of my nonverbal communications are usually when I'm glaring at people. <laughs> so I'm not, I don't have the warm, fuzzy, uh, let's all get together and hug kind of nonverbal communications. It's usually more when I'm looking at them like, well, what do you mean you don't understand what I'm saying? So uh, you're kind of on your own on your developing your nonverbal uh, communication skills. I think we all need to understand that this need to assist self-represented litigants, to provide them with access to justice, is not just our responsibility. It's also the responsibility of our courts, and it's the responsibility of our staff. I think that the justice courts are doing a great job on the court-wide level on the access to justice issue. They're in the process of revamping all of their eviction forms to put them in plain English. Judge Creo sitting in the back has been, Verna's not going to look up and acknowledge this, that she's doing this, has been very instrumental in uh, rewriting this, these forms. I have them all in my little folder here because I need to be reviewing them and providing her input. Uh, but that's how your court can provide access to justice. Is there the ability when they walk in your doors to find the forms they need, to understand those forms, to know what processes to follow? Are there people there who can help them if they have questions and answer those questions and assist them? You know, because we call them self-help centers and I'm not a huge fan of, of the term self-help because it suggests that here it is, help yourself. I like to think of it more as a resource center, a place where we can send self-represented litigants where they can obtain the resources and assistance they need to 
represent themselves, to provide you with forms that make sense, pleadings that make sense, the correct pleadings, to not have them rejected by the clerk's office, which I'm not criticizing the clerks, that's their job, but because they're, they're just uh, missing an I here or a T there. We need to make sure that they get assistance at the ground level. And then there's the staff. And I will tell you from being on family court, uh, I must have heard my staff say 50 times a day, I'm sorry I cannot provide you with legal advice when these self-represented litigants would call on the phone. I'm sorry I can't interpret the judge's ruling for you. I'm sorry I cannot provide you with legal advice. That, that's a correct statement. My staff cannot provide self-represented litigants with legal advice. But not everything they're asking us for is legal advice. There's a difference between legal information and legal advice. And I think too often our staffs, our courthouses, just go to the default position of saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you, I can't give you legal advice. When in actuality they could help them. They want to make sure they're not stepping over that line. You know, we're working to try to address that by trying to come up with answers to commonly asked questions that all courts can utilize so that hopefully uh, we're all providing these self-represented litigants with the same information and we know what answers we can provide. But the guideline I always tried to use for my staff uh, when I thought that perhaps they were using that term a bit too often was to remind them that anything that's on our website, we can tell them. If we can push that out on our websites and tell litigants in a website forum this information, why can't my judicial assistant say that? So if it's information that we put out there, how to fill out this form, how to find this, where to go to do this, what you need to uh, modify your child support, if we can put that on our website, we can certainly provide that information to the litigants when they call on the phone. So that's uh, uh, kind of the rule of thumb I would use with my staff. If they had questions, look, is it on our website? Well, just read to them from what's on our website. Pull up our website on your machine and you can read to them from what's on the website. You don't always have to say, I can't give you legal advice. There may be times when you do have to say that. Because there are times when they're asking for legal advice. But it doesn't have to be the answer that's given every time. There are sections in, in the uh, PowerPoint on what your uh, employees can do from the uh, Code of Judicial Employees. And, and I would encourage them to take a look at that and make sure that they stay current with that information. I don't think it hurts to uh, take a look at it on a regular basis because I do believe that uh, it just becomes too easy for them and they're busy and they want to get the person off the phone because they got three other calls where the lights are blinking and they've got work piling up in their inbox and sometimes it's just too easy to say, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't help you, you're asking for legal advice and I can't give legal advice. Uh, I'm going to finish up by uh, talking about uh, one of the areas our court is exploring uh, right now and that we're getting ready to put into place and I'm hoping that we can incorporate the Justice of the Peace Courts in this process as well, uh, a little bit down the road. 
Um, but we are implementing an AmeriCorps program through an AmeriCorps grant where we're going to have individuals, uh, they're going to be college students, we're hoping, in our self-service center that will actually work with self-represented litigants and help them fill out forms, walk them to the clerk's counter if they need to file something, um, walk them up to the courtroom if it's an order of protection, review the forms to make sure they're done correctly so they don't get rejected at the clerk's office, um, we will use, utilize them hopefully to assist in classes that we can provide to self-represented litigants. Uh, we'd like to be able to uh, maybe on some kind of, not daily, but regular basis, perhaps come to the Justice of the Peace courts and work with the self-represented litigants there on how to fill out forms, whether we do it in a classroom setting or otherwise, but how, how to fill out your eviction papers. Uh, uh, your responses, what to do in these cases, what you need to bring to court. Um, but I think there's a lot we can be, can be doing that will make your jobs easier and ours as well uh, in, in assisting these self-represented litigants. The other thing I wanted to close with is I, I understand that self-represented litigants push your buttons. I fully understand that been there, done that. They will, they can drive you up a wall when you're in the courtroom. Uh, because you can't get them to focus, uh, you can't get them to zero in on what the issues are. They're mad, they're not mad at you, but they're going to take it out on you. And, and so I, I fully understand that these are, can also be extraordinarily difficult individuals to deal with, and they, this is your life. Uh, although I will tell you sometimes I thought that dealing with the self-represented litigants, particularly if both sides were unrepresented, was not uh, nearly as difficult as dealing with the cases where they both had attorneys. Sometimes those are more difficult to deal with than the self-represented litigants. But I, I understand they push your buttons. But uh, it is an area you're, you're always going to have to be cognizant of and aware of, uh, particularly now when all of our courtrooms are recorded. Uh, so uh, while you may not feel like you're treating that self-represented litigant rudely or disrespectfully, the video may tell a different story. Um, so. I think that's the other thing we really have to be aware of now. The video helps us to a very large extent because in many cases the video will show that you did not do what the self-represented litigant is claiming you did. Uh, you know, I had one where they said, well, she just kept telling me to shut up, shut up, shut up. Well, they watched the video and never used that phrase the entire hearing. Did I tell him to be quiet? Yes. Did I tell him he would, he would have his opportunity to speak, but it was not now? Yes, but I never told him to shut up. So the video can be your friend as well. It can support you in what you're doing. Uh, but demeanor is always going to be a huge issue in dealing with self-represented litigants. And demeanor, if you come out and you uh, already have that chip on your shoulder because you're having a bad day and now you've got the self-represented litigant and oh my gosh, not another one. I've already had 20 today. How am I going to deal with this? Let's just get this over with. They perceive that. And that is not procedural fairness to them. And so they will start reacting to that as well. Um, so those are my tips and pointers. 
We all have our own personality. Sometimes things that may work for me may not work for you. But hopefully you can see the overall gist of what we need to do to assure that these individuals have access to justice. I have no problem asking questions of self-represented litigants. I have no problems if I believe they've left something out, pointing that out and asking if they have something. If they tell me they do and it's at home, I have no problem giving them a week to get that material to me. My objective is to make sure that they get what they're entitled to under the law. And if that's what it requires, so be it. Having it on my calendar for another week is not going to kill me. A week goes by, my JA comes in and says, here's what you got, or nothing came in. Um, and then I can issue my ruling, which is probably already typed up with just that one little area missing. So I don't believe that that's acting unfairly. I don't believe that that's creating an unlevel playing field. I believe that's providing self-represented litigants with the access to justice that they deserve and that we should make sure they get. So do you have any questions? Yes. Do you find it easier to deal with self-represented both sides are unrepresented, unrepresented as opposed to one side represented and one side not. Correct, I do. And that's because... Um, I want to repeat the question. Uh, the question was whether I find it easier to deal with two unrepresented litigants or cases where I have one that's unrepresented and one with an attorney. To me, I find it easier to deal with two because I can tell them at the outset. If I feel that information's missing, Dad, I may be asking you some questions to try to get that information. Or Mom, I may be asking you some information to, or questions to try to get that information. So that when I ask the questions, they know why I'm doing it. And I'm not favoring one side over the other. And, and I might start out the question with, you know, Dad, I didn't really hear anything about this. Can you tell me something about this? Or is there anything you want to tell me about this? When I have a side that's represented, how far do you go with the attorney? You know, I'm not there to do the attorney's job. I once had an attorney uh, tell me that, well, their suggestion was that if you have one side represented and one side unrepresented, that the judge should ask the questions on direct of the unrepresented, which typically I would not do. I would just say, tell me what you want, want to tell me. This is your opportunity to put on the record everything you want to tell me. So what do you want to tell me? And I'd let them go in a narrative form. And if they start wandering, I'd redirect them back. But I wouldn't do it on a question and answer basis. And then this attorney's suggestion was that not only do I, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to ask the questions and do the direct examination of the unrepresented, I should do the same for the represented. And I was like, what? You know, aren't you getting paid to do this? And uh, am I going to get part of your fee if I do your job for you? And uh, so I, I do find it more difficult because of that. Where do you go with the attorney there? Um, you know, the reality is, and, and I'm certainly not encouraging uh, malpractice suits, but represented uh, parties whose attorneys uh, drop the ball have an avenue of relief. A self-represented litigant who drops the ball does not. Uh, but it, it, it is, but sometimes I will uh, ask questions even when they're represented, but because of that dynamic, I do find it more difficult. I, I agree, and I don't know how you find it, but I do find it more difficult. Any other questions? Uh, yes. In the event you're hearing a uh, uh, hearing where there's one party that's represented, one party that's not, 
and the part that's represented fails to establish some factual basis, and it's now the other party's turn. Do you let the other party, or do you let the second party go, or do you stop it there? Well, that would be more in a civil case, probably. Or criminal. Yeah, or criminal. Uh, you know, and I, I will tell you, I, I, I usually discouraged, uh, I didn't discourage, that's not the correct word. I made sure they fully understand what they were getting into in a criminal case when a defendant wanted to represent themselves. But uh, in, in that situation, what I might do at that point in time, it depends. If I'm in a case involving a jury, there's very little I'm going to do in front of the jury because I do not want the jury to perceive that I am favoring one party over the other. They will easily pick up on that. So what I might do is take a break, send the jury out of the room, and then sit down with him and say, you know, again, an element of your case is X, Y, and Z. Do you have anything you're going to tell me on X, Y, and Z? You would say that to the represented party? Because again, the situation with the represented party didn't meet their Oh, the represented party didn't meet. In that case, I probably would let the uh, chips fall as they may and, and tell the represented and, and grant. but. You know, you're assuming that the unrepresented party is going to make a motion. If they're not going to make a motion for a directed verdict or a Rule 20 motion, I'm probably not going to do it on my own. Okay, that was the heart of the question. Where, yeah. where is that line if, if, they haven't, if they haven't done what they're going to do and you know they're about to stand up and basically win the case for the other side, you just let them, let them speak? Correct. And if I have a jury trial and somebody has not provided evidence on an element that they need to win their case, uh, I think the jury will catch that when they go through the jury instructions. And, uh, you know, I, I will have to say I have great, great faith in our jury system. Uh, having done jury trials over an extended period and impaneled many a jury, I have never had the jury come back with a verdict where I sat there and said, what were they thinking? How could they come up with this? I always thought that their verdicts may not be what I would have picked, but were certainly I could certainly see how they got there. Now, I'm not, that's not true with some of the questions they ask. Sometimes they come up with questions and you're like, what? But the verdicts I've always been comfortable with. I think juries figure it out. And, and that's problem. Speaking from just court, we usually don't have jurors. Usually, we're also the decider of fact. So, so the typical situation is you're sitting there, you're deciding. Prosecution's done it, so they didn't establish where the person was, the person's about to stand up and testify. They didn't do jurisdiction, just let them go. If, if I would probably allow the defendant to tell me what he wanted to tell me, uh, and then end up ruling in the defendant's favor. If the defendant wanted to tell me anything. Okay. We, we do have a six-judge panel at the end where we can ask lots of questions. Is there anything directed for presiding Judge Barton? Okay, I think you mentioned it before, but I wanted some clarification on it. You know, uh, again, uh, the attorneys are not used to it. They're not going to, it's going to be something they're going to get used to, I guess, for if there is if they're there and there's a uh, litigant representing themselves, to get used to the fact that we are going to um, make sure they're not misled and that information. Uh, could you clarify again? You mentioned if you know they're always uh, wanting to say, well, what about this? What about you know? 
that we may be saying too much. Can you clarify a little bit more about that, of what we actually should be saying to the um, attorney that is there with the self-represented litigant, and we're trying to make sure that this trial goes fair. You know, we'll give information. Well, usually, uh, my experience is oftentimes the attorneys appreciate me starting out by explaining here, like, for example, my family cases. Here's what the issues are that I'm going to be deciding. Here's what the law is on those issues. Because sometimes the attorneys have tried to explain that to their clients, and their clients think they're not fighting hard enough for them when they explain, you've only been married six months. You're not going to get spousal maintenance. You know, he's unemployed. You're not getting spousal maintenance. And it helps if the judge sits there and says, you know, here's what I would have to find in order to award spousal maintenance. So sometimes the attorneys actually appreciate me going into that with their their uh, clients. Um, is that what you're asking, Rachel? No. no uh, the, the, well, um, that's probably a different case. But we're thinking of eviction. We have eviction uh, attorneys. We have criminal attorneys. We have uh, civil. But especially civil, I, I think I, I'm not seeing that yet. Uh, they seem to be uncomfortable about us giving more information. Um, that kind of, um, until they get used to the fact that, I mean, you're right, to explain the procedure in the beginning is probably the best thing uh, so they know what we're doing ahead of time. But I, I see some not taking it very well yet. Oh, and I think you will, you know, because I think attorneys, don't always view that their job is to get their client what they're entitled to under the law. I think sometimes they view that their job is to win. This is an adversarial process. My job is to win. And if I can win on a technicality, it's still a win. Uh, you know, if, if they haven't proven an element of their case or I object to this exhibit and I can keep it out, it's a win. But that's not what our jobs are. And, and that's what I try to explain to them, is my job is to make sure that your client receives everything your client's entitled to under the law, and this uh, party also receives everything they're entitled to under the law. Okay, thank you, uh, Presiding Judge Hartman. Thank you, Chief Justice Bales. And we do, want, uh, we do have a fabulous panel, and we want to make sure we have enough time for them, so please just take a 10 minute break. We will reconvene in 10 minutes. Bathrooms are right out to the right, and we have coffee and water here. Oh, 
always going to tell them about Gerald. So that, I think that's the title of the question that's coming from. But usually I just tell I think it's just easier sometimes when the state or the city or whatever the municipality or whatever comes to will perceive it more fairly if you've heard the entire case, although I know your schedules are busy. Then if you take it upon yourself and say, right, I'm sorry, you're out. I agree with that answer. I'm saying that's what it's coming And you're correct. I wasn't thinking confusion. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of those terms. I had a case the other day. Let me get 
get her car. Yeah, are you walking person. out? Yeah, I am. Are you getting ready to go?
But I just want to have uh, a, the opportunity to have a couple of remarks, and they're prompted by uh, the questions that came up. The question by Judge Kissel, the question by Judge Carrillo, both had me thinking about uh, recognize that in this best practice, you, we are stepping deliberately stepping outside the adversarial paradigm. I, I mentioned it earlier on, but I, let me flesh that out a little bit. Um, we are we we are so used to, and lawyers are are addicted to the adversarial paradigm. That is where you have a, a professional attorney and a professional attorney uh, in front of you, and their job is not to focus on the truth. Their job is to focus on the maximizing the position of their client, and and this this one on. The other side is maximizing the position of their client. And then you, as the judge, get to sit there uh, basically in a completely passive role and make a call on who has, who's the best or who has pres pres persuaded you the most. That's the adversarial paradigm. And we're stepping outside of it when we're starting to talk about self-represented litigants. And I think that's why it does make a big difference if there's an attorney on one side and a self-represented litigant on the other, because already it's a lopsided approach. But also recognize when you step out of the adversarial paradigm, um, there are so many rules that we're used to that are derived from the adversarial paradigm that we, we leave behind. And there's no clear guidelines for us when we do that. And I've been wrestling with this for several months, and the best advice I've come up here is when you step outside of the adversarial paradigm, focus on making certain that you're being fair and you're being even-handed. And you'll have to look at it from a completely new light when you do that. 
Um, Charlie has uh, put up something that's here on my request. Uh, this old phrase about when, you're self -represent, when you represent yourself, choose to represent yourself in court, you're going to be held to the same standards um, as uh, the, uh, the attorney. Um, Judge Bales and Judge Bar Justice Bales and Judge Barton have given us cover but uh, for this, but I'll tell you right now, in this, with, the self with regard to a self-represented litigant, that language is nonsense. It's nonsense, and it doesn't apply. And leave it behind, and don't let anybody, uh, uh, don't let a lawyer intimidate you when you're doing what you need to do with regard to a self-represented litigant. It doesn't apply uh, when uh, in these situations. Um, so again, we're going to introduce the best practice. It has been adopted by our best practice committee, which. Judge Williams chairs, and Judge Williams played a key role in developing it. Uh, but the first draft was actually originally prepared by Mr. Adonetto. And Mr. Adonetto was not making things up on his own when he was doing it. So Charlie, would you take a moment and talk about the sources, the original sources of this best practice? We uh, did a lot of research, thank you, uh, before we implemented this. And so we looked at a lot of source materials, uh, and um, a lot of uh, a couple of them are in your packet, including we, what we primarily used was Richard Zorza. And when Paul Julian is up this afternoon, he can you know, provide more information about Mr. Zorza. But Mr. Zorza really is a leader in the field of self represented litigants. And so uh, the first draft. Uh, of the best practice did rely or borrow heavily on Richard Zorza. What I did is adapted to the justice courts because his wasn't specifically drafted for the justice courts. We also looked at the ethics, and you'll see there's an um, article from the Notre Dame Law Journal on ethics of judges in this new paradigm. Uh, and so um, that'll be important when we look at some of the ethical issues that we'll be talking about this afternoon. And before we proceed, just a couple of house, uh, housekeeping matters. Uh, if we are recording this video and audio, and unless your question is on a microphone, it's not being recorded. So Cheryl is going to run around for this session with the microphone. Uh, if you do have a question, raise your hand and wait for Cheryl to get to you. And this PowerPoint is not in the materials. Uh, what, what it does basically is uh, go through the best practice. There's a little additional material, but not much. So please turn to the best practice in your materials, and that is what we will be relying on here. Okay. Oh, I, I get the slide that has 300 words on it. Okay, okay. awesome. Uh, <laughs> my, my, uh, my goal for this is actually, I mean, you, you, the, just to sort of give an overview of the best practices, you have the, the actual uh, best practices policy in your material, but I kind of want to rush through this because I want to make sure that we have enough time to do the, the scenarios. It, it's sort of like trying to teach evidence. You, you, can, you can put the rules of evidence on the slide, but it doesn't really work and, unless you do examples. And I think this is material that really only works with example. We've got to cover the basics, but the but, scenarios are where it's going to get exciting. Yeah. So, but I just, here we turn here with clickers. So okay. 
but again, and this is stuff we've already talked about, and it's not really a standalone concept. It's something that um, has been sort of evolving for quite a while. The, the first thing that, that happened in this area was when we did the eviction rules. At the time, Arizona, and we still may be the only state that has uh, residential eviction rules. And we did those in large part to sort of codify um, what people knew as happened. The, the only place you could find out what happened in an eviction case in Arizona was to get a hold of the script that was passed out at New Georgia Orientation. And that was perhaps not the best way to, you know, disseminate information. So we had the eviction rules and we had the Justice Court Rules of Civil Procedure, which I had some concerns about initially, but those turned out to be a really good product. I had concerns about going on, you know, down this road on the self-represented living stuff too, but it has turned out to be, I think, a, a very, very good product. Um, but that's, it, it's sort of, a, it's not just, oh, we decided to do this all, it, it's been sort of a whole process that, that a lot of different people have been involved in. And as you, you already saw, it, it ties in directly to the, the Chief Justice's strategic plan. He already explained um, how those go through. We, we obviously want to promote access to justice. You actually emphasized that today. True. Um, and so if we could just maybe again. <laughs> and and you, you've seen this uh, material before already today as well, both through um, the Chief Justice and through the, our presiding Superior Court judge. Again, there, there is legal authority for this. We're not just making it up. Um, and, yes. Although it yes. wasn't mentioned this morning, but Rule 2.8b, a judge shall be patient, dignified, and courteous to litigants as well. Yeah. And um, this is the one of the cases that sort of started it. Um, but there's an article on this case in your materials that was already described. And there's a site to the Notre Dame Law uh, Journal article. It's in there as well. But also, if you have not read Turner v. Rogers, I strongly encourage you to do it. It's it's not necessarily the kind of case that we're going to confront. It's a, it's a child support case. But um, who was the author? Which justice? Justice who authored it took a very, very strong stance in terms of what the due process clause requires of judges uh, when somebody's standing before them and they're representing themselves. The due process clause requires a judge to make certain the person understands what's going on and is treated fairly. Uh, and Turner v. Rogers is the clarion call for action. Uh, to support self-represented litigants in uh, getting a fair shake. Okay. The slides are broken down, in, or the, the material is broken down into things like beginning the proceeding and managing evidence and stuff like that. And one of the things, it, it, it's, it's a really simple idea, but it, it took me a while to realize it, um, that you can't really be mad at people for not following the, ro the rules if you don't tell them what the rules are. And it, it, as silly as that sounds, it, it's a very, very basic thing. And so at the beginning of a, a, an order protection hearing, I'll say, you know, we're only going to talk about what's in paragraph four uh, of the petition. We're not going to decide who's a better mom, who's a better dad, who's a better, you know, boyfriend, who's a better girlfriend, who's a better husband. Who's, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to decide those issues today. We're just deciding this issue, and that's it. And, it, and that helps sort of focus things. Now, a lot of the examples um, 
and the, a lot of references in the material include criminal stuff because these same, a lot of these same concepts apply in, in, when we're facing criminal things as well. But the best practice is specifically designed just for civil. Um, we may write a criminal one at some point, but criminal obviously has a lot of extra considerations that uh, we're not maybe completely prepared to go into today. But a lot of these techniques will work in criminal as well as civil cases. You didn't cover recording all interactions. That's true. Um, keep, uh, keep the FDR on at all times. It, it, it's really your friend. Um, it, it, almost always. It's, it's, it's always your friend because people will allege outlandish things and the, the only thing you have to back it up is because you, you won't remember the case because um, we just we see too many people. So. It's also painful but useful for you to observe yourself from time to time. True. And, and we did feel that it needed to be included here because there are judges who don't record everything um, with the FTR and as Mr. Reamer, I'm sure, will confirm this afternoon, many times the record is your friend. And I also included a link, a, a site to Rule 17.5 of the Arizona Rules of Criminal Procedure because I did have someone coming in at, when I was a pro tem, uh, and he was complaining that he was forced to plead guilty to a criminal matter. And um, to pull up the FTR, it's not on FTR. I, I don't have a clue what, what occurred then. Uh, so it, it, it is... It is of our friend, it is to our benefit, and in the new pro tem policies, it will be mandatory for pro tems to use the FTR at all times that they're in the courtroom. I already gave a order of protection example to, again, just announce what's going on at the beginning. Um, everyone does civil pretrials a little differently. Some people don't expressly do civil pretrials. They set everything directly for mediation. But um, I tell people at the beginning, you know, I said, you know, the purpose of a civil pretrial conference is to check in on the status of the case, see where it is, and see what needs to happen next. And like, oh, okay, so you know, and then it, it sort of sets the tone. We can talk about where they can settle that day. We can talk about a couple other things. But it, if again, if you don't tell them what the rules are, it, it's it's then then their expectations might get frustrated. And th there is also. The, those two examples are in the best practice. I don't think we need to read them to you, but they are there. Yeah, in, the, in the trial itself, I have a really long example that I give at the beginning of trials. I explain, I, I go through the entire order of the trial. You know, both sides will do an opening statement, then, there's, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and this is, this is what cross-examination is. And when you're asking the other side questions, um, you just ask questions, it's not time to argue or debate. I tell them not to do anything they see on afternoon TV judge shows and they usually laugh. And then, it, and, but if you don't tell them, you know, the, if you don't set that groundwork, then your trial will start to dissolve into a committee meeting and it, it just doesn't work as, as most of us know. Now, Gerald and I disagree on uh, one point here, uh, but I think it's a, a fair disagreement. Uh, but if I'm doing a civil trial and both parties are unrepresented, I prefer to do the opening statements for them. I, I uh, opening statements by self-represented litigant tends to go all over the map and get into a lot of unnecessary things. And I hopefully have read the complaint and the answer. Uh, and I go out and I say, you know, 
Mr. Plaintiff, I understand your case involves this, and you're claiming this, and this is how you want me to rule. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Now, Mr. Defendant, I, my understanding is you say no, that's not so, that these are actually true, and that you deny what is one. Is that right? Okay, great. There are opening statements. Now, I want to hear some evidence. I want to put some flesh on this skeleton. So, Plaintiff, call your first witness, and that may well be you. But Gerald is going to have to do opening statements. I put a time limit on it, but it, it doesn't help. I still end up listening to the direct testimony twice. And again, this helps a lot on, and the example is from an injunction against harassment, but explain the time that's available so they know. I mean, and that's one of the things that's odd with us as justices. We have no idea on injunction against harassment or order protection hearings. You set them, you know, and, okay, well, I'll block off 30 minutes, I'll block off an hour, and then you look at your courtroom monitor, you know, and you're ready to go in, and there are 75 people in the courtroom, all of which expect to testify. During this hearing, obviously, you have a management problem at that point. But, yeah, if you tell them what the time limits are and you enforce them and you even let them go longer, then people just want, well, I shouldn't say that they just want an opportunity to be heard, but they obviously feel like they need to, they want to leave feeling that they got their day in court, whatever that means to them. They want to feel that they got their day in court. Here's the most useful thing that has happened to me when I established the time limit for this trial. And it doesn't happen in every case, but when it does, you're very glad you did that. And I'm talking about that defendant who thinks he's going to prove his case by cross-examining the plaintiff forever. You know, I'll say, I have been known to say, you know, Mr. Defendant, you keep asking questions, and I told you already you'll never prove your case through cross-examination. I want to hear what you have to say, but you're not on the stand yet. And look at the time, and look how it's going. You can keep, if you keep cross-examining until the time is used up, you will never testify. So maybe you want to move it on, move along. And the important thing about doing this at the beginning of the hearing is no one is going to complain if you decide this needs to run longer, I need to hear more evidence. But if they're rambling, if you don't set a time limit, and they're rambling on for an hour, and all of a sudden you decide five minutes, you got, you know, then it's worse. So if you set a time limit at the beginning, you're free to go over it, and they're not going to complain. But if you impose a time limit somewhere in the middle of the case or toward the end, that's when you run into problems. Good point. Well, this is, again, to tell what the governing law is, tell what the evidence is. I had a person, I told this example to some people earlier, I could tell at the pretrial conference that he was likely to lose a trial. And I sort of tried to get a settlement, and it didn't go well. So I actually went and printed out the jury instruction for race of soliquitor and handed it to both sides and said, okay, you have to, this is what you have to prove. You have to prove this stuff. You have to defend, you know, attack 
this stuff that he's going to try to prove. And it, it sort of helped. Um, he still was mad at me when he lost the trial. But at least he had some guidance. Um, I find that, and I don't know what other people's experiences are, when, when you're doing words of protection hearing, people generally know what the term harassment means. People almost never know what the term violence means. Obviously, in, in Arizona, domestic violence, a lot of things other than just a Webster's definition of violence. So I, I tell them, I said, this is, this is different than, you don't have to check, you don't have to chase someone around with a pickaxe, you know, to, for it to be domestic violence. Harassment by text message, you know, if the relationship is such can be domestic violence. And that way they're not, they don't structure the entire <coughs> case of, I've never hit her, I've never hit her, I've never hit her. No, you just send her 80 text messages every day. Um, so that's, that's something that I've found to be useful. Charles, do you have any? I, I, I think that this is an important thing, especially, and when we were doing the scenarios, it was hard to come up with uh, pure civil scenarios because we've all been there where you've got two pro-pers on each side and they don't have a clue what they're doing. They don't have a clue how to put in a case. Uh, they don't have a clue how to prove a counterclaim. Uh, if at the beginning of the proceeding you explain I, and as Judge McMurray indicated, he would do it in his opening statement with, I believe you have a breach of contract case. And if that's the case, then you need to prove an offer, an acceptance, consideration, uh, you know, and go through the elements. Uh, and it, it will make your life easier if you do that at the beginning and help people to focus. And, and again, for an order of protection, that I'm not determining if who, who's a bad person, just whether or not this order of protection needs to be in place. Any questions thus far? And again, on a simple language to invite um, the, the best, the best analysis actually, or example I've ever heard on on our eviction cases was Judge McMurray uses the example of fishing. You know, every now and then you've got to stop and say, wait a minute, this one really, no kidding, uh, has some issues. This one really, no kidding. This is different than every other non-payment of rent case I just saw for the last, you know, hour. And um, the, the, what I use, and I actually put it in an article that Arizona Attorney Magazine published, I just, I just say, your landlord's claiming you haven't paid rent for the month of July. Is that true? And they'll say, yes. And I just say, why? And you will almost always get some mixture of my landlord is a jerk and a financial hardship story. Neither one of those are obviously the, you know, defenses to non-payment of rent. But if, if you just say why, then every now and then you'll get something like, well, it's been really hard since they cut off my power. Wait, what? You know, now you've got a, a no kidding issue, you know, legal issue that you, you have to stop and deal with. And probably that is something that might get set for a trial as opposed to everything else. But if, you know, if you, if the person approaches and, and you say something like, do you enter a plea guilty or not guilty to forcible entry and detainer? No. Yeah, they're going to look at you like you have three beds. You know, uh, Gerald asked why I usually say, um, you didn't pay your rent, okay. Uh, the reasons why you didn't pay your rent, is there some major failure here on the part of the landlord, or is it mostly because you're having hard times financially? And we talk about using simple language that does not include Latin. Um, so, <laughs> so don't ask someone how they intend to prove their prima facie case. 
or provide a jury instruction on res ipsa loquitur. Well, it, it, it was actually that kind of case. But yeah, I had to, I had to explain what it was too. But okay. You want to take a matter? You can. You can. Um, I, I'll do it. The, um, again, this is uh, uh, focuses on the per people's perception of fairness, and you probably do from time to time have to let people know. You know, I'm going to be asking questions, but if I do, don't think that I'm doing it because I'm leaning one way or the other. I listen very rigorously, and I never make up my mind until the end. But if, uh, I may ask one side to explain something and then to come back and ask the other side to explain something. Don't interpret my questions as, it, as anything about the decision. I'm going to hear everything before I decide. It, this one is very important because we, we don't want you to leave here today thinking that you can allow propers to ramble on meet with unfocused and with meaningless testimony. Uh, you can keep them focused. You can keep them directed. We need to make sure we do it in a calm, peaceful, dignified manner, uh, but you, you do need to keep them on track. Again, again, it's not Judge Judy. Okay, the next one is pay attention and look like you're paying attention. Um, I, maybe this is more of an issue with some people. A lot of us just keep our cell phone in our pocket. Um, the first time your cell phone goes off in the courtroom and it's your cell phone going off, it's probably the last time you bring your cell phone. And I, I, maybe I'm the only one that that's happened to. You have, you have signs up on your door saying no cell phones. And then yours is the one that goes off and you sort of pretend that it's not there and, and go on. But, um, but yeah, you have to look, you have to, um, and a lot of us are very tech, tech savvy. You're taking notes on the computer, you're doing all this other stuff. Um, you have to make it look like, um, or explain that, hey, I'm gonna take notes on the computer, I'm, I'm doing this, or all this stuff, that the entire order protection is in the computer, that's why I'm focusing on that. But I really am listening to you, so, you know, please don't think I'm being rude or something like that. Okay, so here's the truth. About once every two or three months, I'll be on the bench and I'll say, you know, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, but there is a crisis going on, and if this phone rings, I'm gonna to have to take it. Uh, but I'll get up and leave and I'll come back, and you've got to forgive me for that. Uh, but I am here now, uh, and I want to hear what you need, people need to say to me. So let's get this started. And that does happen, but it's an exception to the rule. Uh, but I would never answer the cell phone while sitting on the bench. If it rang, I'd say, excuse me, I'll be right back. And again, unfortunately, this slide is, uh, this step was here because it was necessary. We have had uh, um, judicial officers answer their cell phone on the bench. And have conversations and negotiate the purchase of a car while in the middle of a trial but, while people sitting around waiting and it's all on MTR. And, and here's, a, here's a funny story is uh, I'm, I'm in court and I hear some music and, and so like all right um cell phones off please and it, and it stops and then a couple minutes later it, it turned okay cell phones off please and then i realized um i was wearing my uh, christmas tie that plays jingle bells and i was leaning forward and setting off my tie so my bad
the next section is on managing evidence in the courtroom. So any questions um, on beginning the proceedings? Good. Wait, wait, wait. Wait for the mic. Wait, wait, wait for the mic. Wait for the I only wear it in December. All right, permit narrative testimony by a self-represented litigant. You know, this is, and I, I think of the times when I told a defendant to stop asking questions, this is getting nowhere. But then, uh, now, they're up. Um, I, I bring them up, I swear them, I sit down, and I tell them, look here, talk to me. Tell me what I need to know about this case. And just uh, let them go, let them go for at least five minutes before I start redirecting. And this is, I mean, obviously we're going to, when we're hearing a case, we're going to pigeonhole, we're going to immediately think, okay, I need to know this. You know, it's a, uh, this is a criminal example. Maybe it's an order protection case, and you're hearing a misdemeanor trial. You need to know if the person, you need to know if the defendant was served. And so when the first witness comes up and it's a law enforcement officer, you're waiting for, you know, the prosecutor asking, was the person served? This is sort of the same thing. You just say, hey, you know, I need to know about this. And this is a, a very artful way. Um, I can't remember who wrote this. It wasn't me, uh, the example. But to um, ask, you know, it's awkward. And say, so were you dating? Were you, did one of you think you were dating? You know, or, or is it kind of, it, it can kind of be awkward sometimes in orders of protection. Um, often in trials with self-represented litigants, the, the self-represented litigant will call somebody to the stand and just start asking and questions, going to the heart of the matter. And I stop and say, wait a minute, before you go there, witness, you know, who are you in this situation? How do you know what happened? Were you there personally? Did you see these things? Okay, great, now ask the question. It's like laying the foundation for a self-represented litigant or testimony or something like that is often necessary. Okay, the next step is to ask questions concerning the nature of the evidence and avoid not admitting, admitting evidence for overly technical reasons. And that note, uh, Judge Williams wanted to put in there, so Judge Williams can explain that. Oh, I, I think it was hard. I, I think because. I worry um, if at some point you're just helping one side present the case. And I, I'll use the phrase, you know, I can't be your lawyer, but you might want to offer some of the documents that appear to be on your table. Um, you brought them to court for some reason, you know, what are they or something like that. But when the pe people come up and you don't have to, under the rules of evidence, you don't have to have a, uh, the person who took the photograph in order to admit the photograph, but you have to have something. And so the person just says, well, you know, here's a picture, and the other, maybe there's an attorney on the other side that says, objection foundation. Well, if, if it's maybe a failure to return a security deposit case and it's a picture of carpet that has stain or damage or something like that, you, you actually need that evidence. And so what I had come around to, it was slow uh, to come around to, is I'll go ahead and not worry so much about the foundation objection and I'll ask questions of the, you know, who took that photo, when was it taken, um, 
did it, you know, was it the condition on move-in? Was it condition on move-out? You know, how, how is it different? All those sorts of things. I'll go ahead and essentially ask foundational type questions and then um, have it come in. It gets tricky if, if, if they're too, and the attorney, if there's an attorney, I'll probably just be frustrated. If it's two self-representing litigants, then they'll say, well, wait a minute, you're helping them. And you'll say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not helping them. I'll, when you offer, when it's your turn to admit stuff, you can admit stuff too. But I think it's, I think it's tricky. Also, what this brings up, and you've all seen this, uh, if you've been observing, and you've seen it. Um, uh, these parties think that we have studied what's in their disclosure statements. <laughs> and often you have to tell them, look, I don't look at your disclosure statements. If you want me to consider something that you've disclosed, you still have to introduce it here today for me. I'm not going to look at that, sir. Consider what you need to put in front of me now. Just kind of an aside, one of my pet peeves here, uh, we have new prosecutors who apparently don't know that we don't have the um, police reports, and so they wave, we're at a trial and they wave their opening statement, and like all you have is a site, and it's like, excuse me, but I, I do want a couple minute opening statement. I'd like to know what the case is actually about. Do we have a question? No. Judge so, can you clarify um, technical, um, the overly technical reason? And I want to, what's the example regarding it may be and what would not be appropriate on the other? Person moves to introduce a photo. Attorney says objection foundation. What he's basically saying is, you know, the standard for uh, admitting a photo is you, dis you determine who took the photo, when it was taken. There may be another uh, one of those basic questions, but the main one is, is this photo live witness? Does this photo fairly represent what you saw that day? Those are all foundational questions to admitting a photo. So what we're basically saying is, if the self-represented litigant moves to introduce a photo and the attorney says objection foundation, you don't simply say sustain and move on. Now, um, I personally hate the objection foundation. And I routinely say to the person making it, counsel exactly what foundation is missing here and let them explain it and then turn to the self-represented litigant that's offering it to make, have him fill it in. All right, can you tell me then what would be the one that would be appropriate? Because you have uh, maybe and may not be. I mean, the self-represented litigant wouldn't even know that anyway if there's two people with it about foundation. And no, they probably, a lot of attorneys don't know what's going on with the drug <laughs> Now, the self-represented litigant would do it. But what is one that is not overly technical? Hearsay. Okay. Um, uh, and I, I would, and I have many times explained. You know, I am um, only going to listen to people who actually saw or heard what was going on. If you're going to tell me what somebody else told you happened. No, we're not going to hear that. We're, we can't hear that. 
you got to get that witness in here. So that there is, uh, and you know, it, it, basically, uh, basically, Rachel, it's uh, what is both fair and accurate. I mean, we don't allow hearsay in because it's not reliable. You know, uh, with regard to foundation on a photo, well, the question is whether or not it's uh, it is. Uh, a reliable photo or not. So get into the foundation there. Judge McMurray uh, had that exact thing yesterday. And it was a criminal case. The state was prosecuting in a self-represented litigant. And he tried to bring in a photo. And the first thing the state did was object to foundation. Well, the defendant didn't have a clue what foundation meant. It was a found, something underneath the house rock block. So I explained to him, reminded him, that when the officer testified, the, the, the foundation was set on was the officer qualified to why was the officer qualified to be, be a witness? And why would they, some, some foundation had to be established to use the photo? Well, he got it. And he was able to explain it. So if you give them an example of what's occurred in court, then they quite often are able to do that. I'm questioning the same thing happens. Quite often a defendant, a self-represented person will ask a witness questions, and then all kinds of stuff comes out of it that they didn't really want to have said. And so I'll go say to them, you know, Attorneys in court have a pretty good idea when they ask the question what the answer is going to be. You just brought to the court a whole bunch of information that we would have never had if you hadn't asked that question. So be sure that you know what you're doing when you ask the question. We didn't give advice, but we gave examples of what happened in court so they won't repeat the same mistake again. Good point. Okay, next up is probe for details and for clarification. And of course, the most obvious situation, we've all been in here a hundred times, somebody comes in for an order of protection and they look really scared they, they, and they're afraid of this person and they can't articulate why. You, know, you, you need to tell us why you're afraid and, you, and we need to establish the relationship and we need to establish the act or threatened act of domestic violence. Maintain control of the courtroom with courtesy and respect. Help litigants stay focused on matters relevant to the judge's discretion. That ties into what we said a couple minutes ago, that you know, we're, we're not saying you need to let people ramble on. You also can let one of the parties do running commentary on what a witness in a witness stand is saying. You've got to control that. You can't allow that. Clarify the relevance of testimony when it is uncertain. Uh, and so don't automatically cut off someone. It, it is possible that it will tie in somehow. And just ask, how does this relate to the issues today? And if you might get a good answer. scenarios then that will that are better examples of this but um, say you have a documents that are maybe repair estimates or maybe a part of a, a lease or you, you have documents that they want to offer into evidence and they they may not comply with the 
is sort of the, the, the general evidentiary standard for the business record exception to hearsay or, or whatever the that it's trying to get in under. Um, we see this in landlord-tenant stuff all the time where the self-representative will just bring a bunch of stuff, the attorney will object, and one easy thing to do is just admit it and say that the objection goes to the weight of the evidence um, and its credibility rather than its admissibility. It also, quite frankly, eliminates an appellate issue. They can't claim that you didn't admit the evidence and that's why you ruled against them. Um, so that it's just sort of one thing. Now you can't let a bunch of junk, you know, if you get someone come up with just a real page like that in the record. But it, it's just one thing that um, rather than argue about whether or not this is a true and correct copy of something or, or whatever, just admit it, say it goes to the weight of the evidence, and then press on. And again, well, in, when we go through the scenarios in our last portion, you'll see one with, with a tenant with a canceled check, which uh, may or may not be a partial payment. And the next step, this one is the one that Judge Williams and I went back and forth on the most. And um, we... This was a fun conversation. <laughs> and, and as you heard Judge Barton say several times this morning, she's okay with this. So when appropriate, tell litigants when they have failed to establish an important element and then provide an opportunity to fill the gap. And this is, this is where I drew my line previously. And, and I think you here this morning. My, my prior line was, um, and you have some kind of civil case, they haven't established damages. They have, they've talked about damages, they've testified about damages, and you can see that they've got repair estimates and photographs on their table. And what I would do prior to me coming around on this issue, if you want to talk it, say it that way, I would just, at the end of their case, I would say, is there any other evidence you want to introduce? And I'd, they'd say, no, I'm done. So are, you, are you sure? Is there anything else, any other, you know, anything else? No. And sometimes I might even nudge and say, are there any documents or photographs you want to introduce? And then he says, like, no. Um, and that's where I would, I would say, okay, fine. Because um, I, I thought asking the next logical question is, do you have any evidence of damages? I thought that that was crossing the line and actually helping them perfect their case. Um, and that's where Charles and I sort of fought with snarky emails and other things uh, for, for that, quite, that's snarky. Mine were snarky um, for for quite a while on this because I, I just because it, it was sort of ingrained in me and just maybe, uh, that you never ever help the other side perfect the case. And then what our presiding superior court judge said at the judicial conference, she says, "Well, you should worry less about that and whether or not you're making the correct decision based on all the evidence that should be coming in." And I was like, "You know, you got a point, and I can't really rebut that." Uh, the, the clearest example that I've seen here, and this had to do, this was actually a civil jury trial. Now, I don't want to get into what difference a jury trial makes right now. I think we will get into it in scenarios. But suffice it to say that I told this self-represented plaintiff that she could have a jury if she wants to. She has that right. She also has the right to perform brain surgery on herself if she wants to, but I don't encourage it. But she wanted to do it. So we're in front of a jury, and it was uh, these people injured my horse and caused him uh, 
to get to die, and they're liable for it. And there was an attorney representing the person she was suing, and she presented a very good case of negligence on the part of the defendant in this case. And then she sat down, and I said, do you rest? And she said, yes. And the attorney immediately jumped up and moved for a directed verdict because she would not introduce any evidence of damages. And I granted um, Because I warned her if she was going to walk off the edge of the cliff in front of the jury, I would let her. However, if it had not been a jury trial, I would have said, you know, you're right, counsel. She has not produced any evidence of damages. Madam Plaintiff, do you want to reopen your case now? and present some damages. I think that's the right thing to do in those cases. Okay, we have a question. As you all know, we have a mediation, and when mediation is unsuccessful, we move immediately into a sort of pre-trial conference where we simply talk about trial preparation. Um, Judge Barton indicated that she had a case, I think, or it was an example, where she gave an individual an opportunity, as I understood, to provide a document that was not present at trial. So there's been a recent case uh, in my building where the landlord didn't bring the contract, didn't bring the five-day, didn't bring an accounting, brought nothing. And uh, when it asked by the judge to buy the contract lease, she said she didn't have it. So do we give her time to go home and get that? after we told her to bring all of her documents in? I'm a little unclear about that. I can give you my off-the-cuff answer. The closest thing that, that I give extra time on is the, the landlord is there, proof of service for some reason is not in the, 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 the trial. I'll, I'll give until the close of the business day to provide proof of service. Um, because he, and then I'll, I'll we'll fill out the judgment form. I won't sign it, and then it comes in that way. That's the closest. That's yeah, that's the closest thing I do to that. I think um, uh, her example was maybe not a good example for trials in justice courts, because family court cases never end. They just, they have just perpetual hearings, and so if you have oh you, oh, you don't have it for this hearing, okay, then you have it for the next hearing, and I, I think that's maybe a little different. Um, than what we would have. I don't think we should ever have a trial where we say, oh, you forgot your evidence, okay, well, you can mail it in. Um, I don't think we should ever do that. Well, I think there's an interesting line here in yeah. terms of an individual who comes to anything, a trial, a, a recital, whatever it might be, and be prepared. And so when you have someone who comes in who's unprepared, uh, to me, it seems as though you should hold them to a certain standard because they're just so lackadaisical about it and come in and give an impassioned speech and say, I should win. And so I'm not sure in this paradigm what we do. Um, and I don't think there's a clear answer. I, I, I was listening and I noticed that I think it'd make a difference to me if this was the initial appearance. Or about a civil trial, though. A civil trial, I mean, an, an eviction trial. They've been here before, and you'd set it for a trial, and they were back. Well, then I think, like, yeah, I think the person needs to have been prepared. That's 
and, and a regular civil trial as well. Yeah. Right? Okay. All right. If if I'm comfortable that at the pretrial it was clearly explained to them that they needed to bring all of their evidence. If and for those if, courts who don't have pretrials, should they continue that trial to allow a litigant to? They'll continue to let them bring the documents in next week. It depends on the comfort level and, and how satisfied you are that they were aware that they needed to bring everything. I think I would look at whether or not what they're alleging would provide a valid defense. I can, I can give an example. Uh, this happened a couple years ago. It was two cases, but they happened about two weeks apart. Um, both of them were automobile accidents. The plaintiff was suing for damages. The plaintiff moved to introduce a estimate from a body shop. The counsel for the defendant stood up and objected on the basis of hearsay. And I said, okay, counsel, did this plaintiff disclose this estimate to you in this part of disclosure? He said, yes. I said, did you tell him you were going to interpose an hearsay objection if he offered it? He said, no, that's not my job. I said, you're right. It's not your job. And counsel, I'm sustaining your objection. But now I'm also giving this uh, plaintiff a continuance to go and subpoena the author of the um, uh, estimate so they can testify. Never mind, judge, I withdraw my objection. <laughs> Two weeks later, different parties, exactly the same scenario, except counsel. Did you tell this uh, plaintiff you were going to interpose a hearsay objection? He said, yes, I did, your honor. Here is the letter I wrote him after I got his disclosure saying, I don't trust this estimate, it's unreliable, I will interpose a hearsay objection at trial. Plaintiff, did you get this letter? Well, yes, judge, I got that letter, but I don't know what it's talking about. I don't understand what hearsay is. I go, oh no, sir, you cannot use ignorance as a weapon in this court. You should have found out at that point. Objection sustained. I have one more follow-up question. I'm sorry. No, no. Um, years ago, I had a, a I had two procurers, and one of the litigants brought a great big grocery bag full of receipts and brought it up to the bench and said, "Here's my evidence, right? <laughs> and uh, many years later, someone gave me uh, the quote about a judge is not a pig uh, uh, ruffling through the forest for troubles or something like that. <laughs> um, I took that big bag of receipts. She was an elderly lady, and I organized it just to see what was there. I guess the question is, you know, to what extent do we need to kind of organize those documents as they come in, or how strict are you gentlemen being in terms of having the exhibits marked and, and things of that nature? Thank you. I, I've actually told people I'm not H&R Block. I'm not going to figure this stuff out for you. Uh, when, when they hand me a big stack of, well, here are all my, and it's a, it's the failure, to, it starts as a failure to return a security deposit case, and it becomes a counterclaim where it looks like it's basically the, the homeowners remodeling the house and trying to get the prior tenant to, to pay for everything. And so you get this giant pile of stuff. And it's, well, my damages are in there somewhere. And I'm like, well, I'm, you're gonna have to at least add them up. I'm not, I'm not going to do that for you. Um, the only um, situation where uh, an, a judge got in trouble for crossing a line, and it's, and it's an older opinion out of a, a California ethics opinion, it's when they were interacting with the, 
the person in the courtroom that gave him uh, really good advice. Um, they, they said, well, if you're going to file for a divorce, you need to do this. But they actually walked them over to the Superior Court side of the building, uh, helped them fill out the divorce kit paperwork, and helped them file the waiver of counsel form, and then, and then stood next to them as they filed that in Superior Court. And the, the, California Commission on Judicial Conduct said no, that the judge is not obligated to act as counsel for the, you know, it's like A and B are okay, C and D or way over the line. Um, and so maybe there's not a bright line rule, but yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're going to say, oh, I'll just take a recess while I prepare your exhibits for you, then that, that would probably be over. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Uh, step number nine is once again provide a final opportunity for litigants to add to their testimony or to present additional evidence. And again, this, this is to ensure that people um, believe that they have been heard. And the final step in managing evidence, when necessary, the judge should remind the parties that the judge must be neutral and fair. Any questions about managing evidence? We have a question. Thank you. Could you go back to slide number nine for just a moment? Because it's something I wanted to reference. Okay, fair enough. But so you've come to the plaintiff rests, the defendant rests. I understand procedurally to make sure that parties have an opportunity to be heard. You may then take this out of order and say, fine. Does either party have any additional information they want to offer, any additional evidence? Fair enough, but if you deviate from the way that a trial is actually conducted, are you not at this point then, and offering it to both parties, opening it up for the plaintiff to say, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, Judge, I do. There's something I forgot to say, so let me tell you about this, and let me give you some evidence on that. Great, you're reinitiating the potential for cross-examination. My question to you is, when you talk about this as, you know, point number nine, is it, since we're talking about closing arguments, plaintiff is rest, defense is rest, you reopen the door at this point, or do it in a more formal fashion, and that is plaintiff rest. Okay, now are you sure there's nothing further you want to offer? No further evidence, no further witnesses. This will be your last opportunity. Procedurally, how do you address it? Well, I like your latter approach the, the best, but uh, remember, Craig, you also, there's a possibility for rebuttal. Uh, so uh, I will say, after the defendant rests, you know, plaintiff, this is your opportunity to present rebuttal. Now, you can't go into anything new here. Anything you're offering now is something that was covered in the defendant's case that you want to give a fairer picture to. Is there anything like that? But um, I think this is mostly uh, to encourage before the each party resting, is there anything else? Have you presented everything I need here? I think that's mainly the direction. And, and if there is something that's that crucial, and, and you are the judge, you're, you're the determining, you make the determination whether or not it's important enough to possibly reopen the plaintiff's case. We, we want to reach the right decision for the right reasons, not because somebody forgot to mention it. Okay. I uh, well, guess my favorite uh, comment of defendant or of self-represented litigants is, 
Judge, you can just call my best friend and she'll tell you I'm correct. I assume you don't want us to call. Yeah. Okay, concluding the proceeding. In a civil trial, uh, not jury, one represented litigant, one non-represented litigant, and the represented litigant has an attorney who's asking a series of questions that are going to induce hearsay. The non-represented person doesn't know enough to object. Could you suggest some ways to manage that situation? I had that situation, um, and uh, uh, it was a one of, your, one of our favorite landlord attorneys. Um, and um, I just let him inter uh, go ahead. And then at the end I said, you know, what I have is live testimony from this defendant going this way. And I have the testimony that you counsel got in um, we have to move on. Uh, uh, that goes the other way. But of course what you were introducing was hearsay evidence. Uh, and it wasn't objected to, because so it came in. But counsel, I can't ignore my training in the evidence. We leave out hearsay because it's not reliable. I've got a live person, and I've got the hearsay you offered. Guess who wins? What's a follow-up? We can, we can save the follow-ups for the scenarios where we're going to be pressed to finish here. So let's move on. Uh, we can almost just say on the just. I, I don't know that we have that much new, new material on. We've already, prior speakers have already talked about announcing decisions from the bench and why that's good and why that, that's helpful and explaining your decision if you can. Um, I just, I, I would almost rather blow through this just so we get to the scenarios because I think really that's what. Oh, wait, Harold. Well, no, I mean, it's. No, no, I think you're right. Yeah, so just, um, you know, just, uh, when, uh, a prior JP um, does a, a whole speech on the art of judging, and one of his things is to, if you know someone's going to be mad at your decision, let them read it with their phone bill. Um, so, like was said earlier, don't, I mean, announce a decision, explain the decision. One of the court tools measurements is that people um, understand what's, what's happening to them. Um, if, if people leave the courtroom and they maybe don't agree with the result, but they at least think they were treated fairly, or if there's something that next that they have to do, if they know what the next step is, then I think we, we have won as, as judges because we're never going to make everybody happy, but yeah. it, at least we can make people think they, they were treated fairly. And the only qualification I would put on that is I will often take civil cases under advisement, but rarely if ever take an eviction case under advisement. I will explain my reasons for evictions right there because they've got five days to appeal. And I'm also going to tell them that. You know, I've made my decision. This is the reason for it. If you're going to appeal, you absolutely have the right to appeal. But if you're going to appeal, you have five days to do it. So, good luck. And we wrapped up quickly. <laughs> Read the rest of the best practice. We did have some procedural fairness slides there, and those um, tied very closely into what uh, Chief Justice Bales mentioned this morning. Uh, we can either break now or um, ask, you ask a few questions, but that'll any question you ask now is going to take away from the time from the panel of experts that we have. And remember, the scenarios are the exciting part. You know? 
there. Yeah. So let's go ahead and let's break now. You get a 15-minute break. We're going to start right up at 11 o'clock with our panel. If I can have the panelists please come up. Okay, and so I am going to sit here since I'm controlling okay. that. Uh, if you two want to run around with microphones. I can do that. Yeah. Do you want to, okay, so take one of you take it from Cheryl, the other take one here. I've always wanted to be Phil Donahue. And now you, you, you can. Would like scenarios Yes. Yes. The questions are not. The questions are not scenario based. So you will need to to have take a look in your packet for the scenarios. Fortunately, I have this. So I'll take that. Okay, great.
speak is where you want the microphone to you. Somebody else needs to continue. So you might have to come back and forth. Just a heads up.
George Reamer, Judge Perillo is trying to do some work sitting down. And uh, Paul has done uh, a lot of work on self-represented litigants. I believe you were in the bathroom when I offered you know, that you might have more information on Richard Zorza if you wanted to work that into any of your answers. Uh, George Reamer, everyone knows, uh, is the executive director of the Judicial Conduct Commission, and he has been a panelist for us before, so uh, we thank him. Everyone knows Honorable Rachel Torres Correa. Uh, and she is on the, what, what is that committee? The Access, uh, see now you're making me nervous, I don't even know what it is. Access, um, Commission to Access Justice. Okay, and the chair of that committee is the Honorable Lawrence Winthrop yes. uh, from the Arizona Court of Appeals. And here's the special slide. He uh, did just win the out uh, James A. Walsh Outstanding Jurist Award from the State Bar. So. And before we go into the scenarios, the PowerPoint is not in your materials, the scenarios are. Uh, so we're going to be working from the scenarios. They do have the question, they have the fact patterns, they have the questions. We want lots of input from the crowd. That's why we have two microphones going around in the crowd. 
And Kim wanted me to make sure that before you leave today, you do get your parking validated. Uh, and so we, um, validation is at the back table. Any other housekeeping matters? Okay. So let's go with scenario number one. In an eviction trial, the landlord's attorney presents a clearly effective five-day notice. The SRL tenant does not object. A proper five-day notice was issued, but it appears the SRL tenant, oh, let's go to the questions before then. And Charlie, since they're not on the uh, slideshow and this is being recorded, I think we probably should read them. So, uh, panel, um, the SRL tenant doesn't object. Should you, as the judge, raise this defect on behalf of the SRL tenant or advise the SRL tenant about how to, about how to do so? How do you do so without crossing any lines? Don't all rush in. Just for you, Yes, I think you should. Uh, first, like we do all the time, we go over the, um, the five-day notice. Now, it says eviction trial, so hopefully uh, they would have done that prior to that time. If there was something wrong, you would have known at that time. But if it wasn't raised at that time, I think it's still important to raise it, that this, um, that the, that it was clearly defective. What was wrong with it? Did it, did they even get it? Did they get the um, five-day notice? Were they served? Were they aware of it? All this information needs to um, be presented as well to the defendant or the self-represented litigant. Uh, as far as um, how do we not cross the lines, I think uh, we have to raise this issue because it is an issue. If we see that it, that the it was not properly uh, served or something was wrong with it, we do need to uh, let everybody know, including the uh, self-represented litigant, that uh, it's invalid. Let's let's flesh out this clearly defective notice. How yes. about a five-day notice that doesn't have any amounts on it at right. all? You haven't paid your rent. You pay it in five days or you're out. Right. Would you raise that? I would raise that question because they have a right to know you're here, why, why you're here, because you haven't paid rent, how much is it? Maybe the person would have paid within those five days. I, I think that the, that the idea is that the notices have to be curable. And so anything that's defective, you're not given the opportunity to cure. And so I don't think that we can procedurally go forward with something that from, from the base is not valid. I just want to follow up on that same comment. Uh, I have often asked an SR, SRL landlord, what do you think the reason for this five-day notice is? It's not just the technicality that you have to do it. It's to give the tenant the opportunity to cure give them an opportunity to fix the problem before coming to court. So I've seen a lot of these notices that just say you haven't paid the rent, you have to be out in five days. And I said, that notice doesn't give anybody an opportunity to cure anything. You have, the notice must state what they need to do to fix the problem. If it doesn't, it's a defective notice at that point. Paul? Oh, thank you. Um, 
And again, thanks for putting this together. Um, the question itself says, should we raise this defect on behalf of the SRL? That's a little bit different than what we're answering at this point. And then the, the next one is, uh, should or advise the SRL tenant. I mean, that uh, raising on behalf and advising, those are key words that start making it sound like you're being someone other than a neutral judicial officer, but rather an advocate. And so I think maybe the, the reason, the second question is, how do you do so without crossing any lines? Well, you don't do it on behalf of, or you don't do it advising. You do it as a judicial officer, stating what the law is, what the elements are, and, and what's required, rather than acting as though you're being someone, uh, you know, siding with this uh, represented litigant. Okay, so let's, let's go to the next part of the scenario. We have a proper five-day notice. But uh, now you're starting to suspect that the tenant may have a defense or counterclaim based upon an issue of habitability. And the tenant is not acting or appears to be aware that she may have a defense or a counterclaim. Do you raise this now in the trial? I think it's a different question. You know, I think we, uh, we got a preview of this from our earlier speakers, and that is, it's perfectly acceptable to ask the tenant why they didn't pay the rent, whether they owe it, whether they understand that, but why didn't they pay? And recognize, of course, that the landlord, there by themselves or through counsel, can cross-examine the tenant on the information they're giving in response to the judge's question. I think part of this comes down to the way the question is phrased when it says might have and possible though. Because it's not up to the court to determine possibilities that somebody could raise. It's, at that point, you may be crossing the line and providing legal advice. That's different from saying, why did you not do this? But if you're then saying, well, I can come up with a counterclaim for you, and I'm going to tell you about it. Now I think across the line, and I think that the represented landlord's attorney is going to be filing a judicial complaint against you and saying, wait a second, once it comes to doing shoulds, and that's one of the key words I tend to focus on, when you're saying what, saying what you should do, you're giving legal advice. When you're saying what happened, what else happened, then you're asking questions for providing and getting information. So it's the should word that I really have a problem with here because this, the way the question is phrased, it's not specific. It's, there is the possibility that. And I don't think as a judicial officer we're supposed to be looking at what possible claims could each party possibly raise. I, I wrote this as quicksand. Um, I think most of you know that before the 13 years that I worked, I worked for the Supreme Court, I was the director of Southern Arizona Legal Aid, and uh, uh, you know I certainly agree with what's been said. Um, but uh, you know we don't have a, a civil equivalent of Gideon. We don't provide lawyers for people generally in civil cases unless there might be some extraordinary circumstances. Um, but you know, we find them guilty 
in these eviction cases, if you will, we use that term. And if, they, if anything comes close to, to that type of a, a situation, and if you have a, even a sense that there might be a defense, I, I you know, I just proposed this. Is there, would it be appropriate to say, you know what, um, you might want to get a lawyer. Uh, you know, you have a right to have an attorney in this case if you want to have one before we proceed. And uh, it might be helpful to you. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it makes me very nervous doing that. But on the other hand, uh, you know, this goes on and people are not given a full opportunity to defend themselves because they don't know the law. It's complicated. And, uh, you know, I mean, this started off with the landlord uh, not fulfilling the statutory requirement on the five-day notice. I, I don't, I don't, I'd appreciate thoughts from the rest of you about that. Because I don't, I, I realize I'm a little tainted. <laughs> with regard to the five-day notice where we see it's improper, and now we're dealing with a situation where the defendant hasn't shown up, the defendant's defaulted. Are we applying the same scrutiny you described? So the five-day notice you know is sufficient, um, it was filed improperly, maybe they're doing an immediate when it should be a 10-day. Do you need to now apply the same scrutiny and then, and then say, oh, hold on, this is deficient and, and, and dismiss? Well, actually, I wasn't referring to the five-day notice. I was referring to the potential of a legitimate defense that's not going to get raised. I've come back to the first Yeah, no, no, that's your question. You know, what I would say to that is that the uh, landlord has the burden of proof. And part of that proof is showing statutory compliance. And so the fact that the defendant has not shown up, at least in my view, doesn't answer the question. Is the, has the landlord met that burden of proof? It's almost similar to a jurisdictional uh, question the court has to ask itself. Do I have jurisdiction over this matter? So I, I think it's perfectly appropriate if you see a defective notice on its face and then question the landlord about it and, and to send them back to, to do it the right way. Move on to scenario number two, and this is an order of protection hearing. And in this case, the petitioner is self-represented and actually has a pending criminal charge against him for the same incident. Uh, but he has uh, the, let's say, chutzpah to come in and ask for an order of protection against the victim. So the questions are, do you inform the petitioner of the right to remain silent? How strenuously? Do you tell him if he chooses to testify, he'll be subject to cross-examination? What if the defendant has an attorney? Does this change how you proceed? We'd like to address that. Uh, my short answer is yes. Uh, anytime somebody's going to testify in an order of protection or any civil hearing, and I think that their potential for exposure to criminal prosecution, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. And in fact, I think it's probably incumbent on you in most circumstances to inform them they have a right to remain silent. Uh, the way I usually phrase it is something along the lines of, I understand there may be a criminal case pending. You should be aware if you choose to testify in these proceedings. Anything you say is being recorded. It's possible that that could be used against you in a later proceeding. Uh, you don't have to testify if you don't want to. Uh, if you do testify, they'll be able to ask you questions and, and, and you will be required to answer those. On the other hand, you can remain silent. Now, in order of protection context, you don't want to add the, you, you can remain silent and that won't be held against you because actually the judge is allowed to infer from silence uh, to draw, draw the negative inference. 
Moreover, if this is the only person testifying, and he's the petitioner, and that's the only evidence he's got is his own testimony, if he invokes his right to testify, then I don't think you have any basis to issue the order because there's no evidence to support it. But I think regardless of, of which of these parties is, if you think there's potential exposure there that uh, you, you're, not only should you, but I think you're obligated to do that, I don't think there's any ethical issues there. And I don't think it makes any difference if the person you're advising if the person you're advising is unrepresented, I think you need to do it. It says here, the defendant having an attorney, uh, if the person who's, who potentially is facing the exposure uh, has counsel, I typically don't advise them because I presume that counsel has, or it's certainly the responsibility of counsel to advise them as to the potential consequences of them taking the stand. So Judge Epic, I, I can get you telling the petitioner who is a criminal defendant elsewhere, that uh, warning him about taking the stand and the consequences. But as part of that warning, it says, uh, okay, now also recognize that in this hearing, if you don't testify, uh, you're not going to get, uh, get this order. Are you going to tell him that? I don't know if I'd phrase it that way, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, in that context, you could tell them that if they're unable to present any evidence, that they won't get the order. I don't, I don't know that there's a problem with that. I wouldn't say right out, off the bat you won't get the order because there's always that possibility that they could get it some other way. And I think there's, we get to other questions here that relate to that. Exactly, so the response is, well, I'm gonna get that way by questioning the victim. So the SRL petitioner wants to call the SRL defendant as a witness. She is a victim in the pending DV criminal case. Do you inform the, the victim of her right, uh, of her victim's rights not to be questioned as a victim and how strenuously? All right, and this is one where I hear the voice of my torts professor from law school telling me not to fight the hypothetical. Um, but but uh, frankly, there is not a victim's right not to testify in a legal proceeding. The victim's right is to not be subject to a pretrial interview by the defendant or counsel or subject to a deposition or discovery request. So I think the person has the right to call the victim, the alleged victim, as a, as a witness and to question the, the victim. You do have the ability, though, and the, and the obligation to make sure that, there's, that the questioning of the, of the victim isn't abusive. And I think you also can limit the questioning in such a way when it becomes clear, if it becomes clear, that this is really a, a backdoor effort at some type of discovery rather than about whether or not there should be an order of protection. I would concur with that. Also, even if it were not, the Victims' Bill of Rights talks about discovery issues. It doesn't talk about testifying at trials and in all kinds of criminal cases. Victims testify at trials because they testify about what happened. If you had to weigh and balance the victim's rights against the right against cross-examination, I think the due process part of cross-examination, because orders of protection are civil, not criminal, would outweigh the victim's rights. I think they would trump it, because your due process rights come from both the federal and the state constitutions. The victim's rights is in our state constitution, but I think the due process of being able to cross-examine the party against you would probably trump that. So I thought I'd just throw that in. And, and if you think about the rationale behind the victim's rights, it's to prevent the victim from being abused. And in the context of a court proceeding, that's your job. So that protection is there in terms of your ability to limit the questioning, to, 
to uh, you know make sure the victim's not being badgered or anything like that. Uh, you also should need to keep in mind that with these domestic violence situations, you're going to get somebody who's the defendant and somebody who's the victim. And for all you know, the police in their charging decision got it wrong. Um, they may both be potentially defendants. They may both actually be victims, maybe one, maybe the other. Um, you don't necessarily know that. So I think you have, to, you have to sort of play it straight and not presume that the person who's accused, who's presumed to be innocent, is in fact the bad guy in this. A practice point, and it doesn't say in the scenario whether or not this is the hearing for the first uh, uh, opportunity for the order or if there was an ex parte request. Uh, what I try to do is without dissuading someone from pursuing a, a, a request, uh, at that opportunity explain the uh, unusual format of an ex parte contact between anyone and a judge and, uh, and explain if you request this and it's granted, if I grant this order, there's a possibility there's going to be a hearing. And so these issues, if you have that opportunity, can be sort of vetted at that point in time. Again, not with the intent of dissuading someone from pursuing it, but at least make them aware that you know you you may end up you're going to have to testify uh, uh, or at least provide some evidence to the court in order to to maintain this. And so if you if you go through that at the time of the ex parte hearing, you might be able to avoid some of this. Okay, moving on. After the presentation of all the evidence, you do find that an order of protection is appropriate. The SRL defendant is confused and angry because the petitioner has pending criminal charges. The defendant further complains because they have a child in common. This is the first you've heard about that. And wants to know how are they going to make child care arrangements. So the questions are, how well do you explain the decision to her? Does your statement resolve issues with compliance for the parties? Do you have any obligation to set expectations for the petitioner's or defendant's next steps? say that first of all you have to explain your ruling because the Arizona Rules of Protective Order Proceedings require you to do so in Rule 8. You have to give the reasons for your ruling. So I can understand the defendant being confused and you need to explain that there are two different proceedings. That the order of protection which has now been granted for the petitioner criminal defendant is a keep away order that says she needs to keep away from his. And that's being granted because he proved his case by the preponderance of, an evidence, of the evidence and remind her that at the beginning of the hearing that you hear what you theoretically did, you explain what the burden of proof was for the petitioner and you also explain the other rules that would be going into the hearing. Um, once she knows that, and now she brings up, well, we have a child in common, that you need to explain to her that issues about child access, parenting, are issues that are going to be handled in a family court proceeding, not in an order of protection proceeding. And so while they may have issues about what to do and how to do it, this is not going to be raised or handled here today because that's not the focus of the hearing. The focus of your order of protection hearing is simply to provide protection for the party who needs it. And I would probably tell both litigants, you know, if she feels she needs protection, 
she's certainly entitled to also seek her own order of protection by going down, well, at Superior Court's going down to the uh, Family Violence Protective Service Center or filling out the appropriate petition and bringing it up to court. She has the same rights to get a protective order, but the protective orders don't concern parenting decisions. Those are left to the family court and the family court procedure. So, Judge Harris, I get that you've got to refer family issues to family court, but what about this business of are you going to, would you consider looking back at your no contact uh, order to uh, modify it some way about uh, contacting with regard to child care arrangements? Because nobody has accused so far uh, anybody of hurting or posing a threat to the child. Nobody's accused of posing a threat to the child, but the parties, if they have a true no contact order between the two of them, can find alternate ways without changing my order. Uh, Dad can say, elect to say, um, grandma, grandpa, next door neighbor, aunt, uncle, whoever, will contact whoever mother's representative is, or mother. Mother can contact father's representative. They can work out a way to do it without contacting each other. In many cases, just, I was on the family court bench for 10 years, so one of the huge reasons for having domestic violence issues is because they can't get along about what's happening with the child. And so saying, well, yes, you can talk to each other to work out what's happening with the child is almost like lighting a little fire that can then become a conflagration. So if we determine in the court, in the order of protection hearing, that the parties should be having contact because it poses a danger to the petitioner, I don't think I'd change the order to say, yes, you can do it. I tell them that they need to find alternate people to make arrangements with, or on behalf of how the child will be exchanged and referred to family court, where they can file a petition for you know temporary parenting time orders, if necessary, or if that's what they need, and they haven't gone to family court at all. Because they have a child in common, Unless this is prior to any kind of dissolution of paternity proceeding, they probably have a family court case pending. If it's the first one, then they need to go to family court and let the family court handle what family court's supposed to do. I would have a slightly different answer. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with your sort of reopening it once you get this new information or the issue of whether or not you should make some exceptions for contact, whether it be by phone or by third party. Um, I think what uh, the judges proposed in terms of grandma or whatever, I think you need to then put in a third party exception because otherwise, otherwise it's otherwise it can indirectly contact. It's a violation of the order, I think. And keep in mind, you can't, it's true, you cannot issue um, child custody orders out of limited jurisdiction courts. But you can certainly craft your order of protection in a way, provided that it still protects the party. I mean, there are times when no contact is what you got to have, even if there's kids. I will grant you that. But generally speaking, in a scenario where, you know, why can't a third party do it, or maybe it's email or text, you know, there, there are cases where the exceptions are appropriate, and there's nothing wrong with putting exceptions in to facilitate, if, as long as the children are protected parties, you have concerns about the safety of the children. Because once you say, well, I'm not going to address it, I've already decided no contact, go to family court, then you may be putting into play a process that the parties don't really want. 
Um, typically, if they're going to be filing for a temporary order, the way the rules read, the temporary order is to be filed either, either subsequent to or simultaneous with a petition for dissolution, a petition for legal decision making between, you know, if they're not married parents, uh, you know, with permanent orders and permanent consequences. In this incident, as we all know, and like it or not, maybe something that is just a, a blip on their sort of life and they're going to be all back together and everything's going to be hunky-dory without the need for them to, to access family court. So that would be my suggestion is, yeah, in the appropriate circumstances, absolutely no contact is fine, but there's nothing wrong with, with crafting exceptions if you think that those exceptions are still sufficient to allow for the needed protection. Mm -hmm. Okay, scenario number three, Judge McMurray, do you want to take this one? Well, this was one I, I forgot it was a scenario. I think you did. Uh, plaintiff and representative defendant, the plaintiff presents an automobile repair act testament that he disclosed in discovery. The defendant's attorney objects his hearsay. Um, panel, what further inquiry of any should you make as to the disclosure? Plaintiff has otherwise proved his prime patient case. How do you proceed? Well, I feel like I don't, I'm being on this panel, um, but uh, one of the things that I, I wondered about was whether or not there had been any objection to the disclosure in the first place, before the trial. But, I mean, that, that's not necessarily something that happens in, in cases that we see as justices of the peace. Um, but uh, I, I suppose that, that maybe you could give uh, an opportunity for the, the um, I mean, you don't want to, I don't think it's appropriate for you to get into the hearsay rules as far as explaining, you know, what the rights of the, the plaintiff are in, in order to prove the, the uh, you know, that there is some, uh, we've got more exceptions to the rule on hearsay than we have in the rule. Now, there are many of them, but uh, again, you know, I just this makes me nervous getting into this. Uh, and I would assume that your represented defendant is he's objecting here already and not going to let you do very much without objecting further. So, you know, you might, you, you might give more time depending on how long this thing has been carried out. And, uh, and you know, you've got the prima facie case already met otherwise, so does it really make any difference? I don't think so. Well, this one strikes me as being very similar to what our previous panel presented, where they had the repair estimate disclosed during disclosure, and then it was did the attorney let the plaintiff know about the objection prior hearsay objection prior to trial and what they would do about it. And so I think at that point, you could probably do one of two things. You could say, well, I'm going to admit it and give it the weight I think it's worth. Or you could simply sit there and say, yes, I'm going to not admit it as hearsay. Or you could ask some foundational questions on your own to the plaintiff to find out if this estimate is reliable. You know, who is the estimate?
estimate from? What kind of repair place? Did the person writing, the person writing the estimate, the plaintiff's best friend, who does car repair on the side, or is it, you know, a major business? So I'd be looking at exactly what is this estimate as well in terms of how reliable is the estimate likely to be? Is this being done for an insurance company for insurance purposes? You know, who prepared this estimate? What company, where, how, when, for what purpose? Was it prepared just for litigation? I mean, those are questions I would want answers to before I would admit. So, Judge, do you, what would you do if you're getting continued objections from the attorney about your questioning? Would you just go ahead and continue with the questioning, or and that's what, that makes me nervous? If, if you know, assuming the attorney's going to object to you asking these questions, I'd ask the attorney for the basis for the objection, other than just saying hearsay or on a specific basis. Because, again, not all hearsay is objectionable. So the question becomes to me, is this hearsay going to fit within any of the exceptions? Let the attorney tell me it's not. I, th I think also you may have a little more leeway to do some questioning with, the, with respect to this type of an objection, a hearsay objection, because a lot of times it's not as much a hearsay objection as it's a foundational objection. And I think you're allowed to explore those a little more with the parties just because, you know, controlling the admission of evidence is what you do. And, you know, yes, they're going to make the objections, you're going to rule on the objection that's, that's put before you. But as long as you're not putting your thumb on the scale and you're, you're indicating why it is or you're clarifying or that sort of thing, I think I don't see a problem with you asking questions to, to get at the meat of what the objection is and what the response is. And then if you're going to let something in and it's, it's a judgment call, there's nothing that prohibits you from saying, and you know, I'm overruling the objection, but the objection raised certainly goes to the weight of the evidence, and I'll take that into account. And that way, if somebody's satisfied, they got, you know, that you know what you're doing, and that maybe they're gonna get some benefit from, from it, regardless. Well, I think our panel is foreshadowing the, the next question, and that has to do with uh, the self-represented plaintiff tends to offer a picture printed from his home computer um, and the defendant's attorney objects on the basis of foundation and on relevancy. And the question is, may you ask questions of the plaintiff to defeat the objection? Yes. <laughs> How about to sustain the objection? I think we had the, uh, that explored in the earlier panel. Um, I personally see nothing wrong with the, the judge asking uh, clarifying questions to determine whether there's a basis upon which to admit uh, the evidence. And, but again, just on the wording of the question, uh, the question is, may you ask questions of the plaintiff to defeat the objection? If that's your goal, that's probably not appropriate. But I think that's a good point, though. I mean, that's it's you have to be careful not to get right into the middle of the litigation and start feeling like you're advocating for one side or the other. And uh, I think there is a tendency. I mean, this is just not clear cut, uh, and in a way, it's sort of evolving. At least during the 30 years I've been practicing, uh, 
I think there's more and more tolerance for this sort of thing, uh, you know, with the, the rules that we have that, that George is responsible for, and maybe you can speak to that just kind of generally. Uh, but, you know, I remember when I first started practicing, uh, you know, before maybe some of you were even born, uh, you know, there was just a different approach to this and somewhat callous. Great, great uh, opportunity for a segue here. And I was going to jump in anyway because I, I know that in the back of your mind is the question, when could this become unethical? And that's the fear that judges have, that somebody's going to complain, that's it. You weighed in on behalf of someone, you showed you were partial, you were biased uh, in favor of a party or prejudice uh, against me. And that isn't probably always very easy uh, to determine uh, the rule, at least one principle rule says, you shall perform all duties of judicial office fairly and impartially. So then you go back to the definition, and there is a definition of uh, impartiality, uh, impartial. It means absence of bias or prejudice in favor of or against particular parties or classes of parties as well as the maintenance of an open mind in considering questions that come before you. Uh, in the prior uh, presentation, I was thinking to myself, you know, I think you handle a lot more cases than we have complaints. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that is really good news. Uh, because uh, people do bring this issue up, that the judge was biased in favor of the police officer, or, you know, there are a lot of different scenarios. But you have to really drill down and determine, was it unethical? And I think that's a whole different standard. Now, you can argue, well, fair, impartial, you know, those are terms kind of you know, different interpretations. But these are rules of reason, and the rules of reason are interpreted by what I consider to be a reasonable group. Judge Winthrop, being a reasonable judge, was a member of the commission for many years. It's, it's a well-crafted structure where you have representatives from Court of Appeals, Superior Court, Justice Court, Municipal Court, uh, Public, and those reasonable people are evaluating these questions as to whether or not what you did was unethical. You know, the appellate process is there for dealing with all of the other issues, so I just, that's in the back of your mind, and I think you do need to keep that in the back of your mind is to wonder whether, when is your interaction uh, gone to the point of being truly unethically partial. But I don't think you need to be intimidated by that. And I think this, the whole development of these uh, pre uh, rules and, and guidelines and scripts are, are, are great because we all know how many people are not able to afford lawyers. And it's only going to become, I think, uh, more prevalent rather than less. So I don't think you need to be overly concerned that just because somebody complains that it's going to have really any merit as a matter of ethics. I, I don't think there's any, any problem with phrasing a, a request for the non-objecting party to respond in a way that clarifies what the objection is. I mean, here the, you have the attorneys say, objection, relevance, lack of foundation. I don't think there's anything wrong with turning to the unrepresented party and saying, how is it 
that this is makes a difference as to whether or not A, B, or C. In other words, you just paraphrase, paraphrase what the term relevance means in asking them to respond to the objection. I think that's perfectly acceptable. And with the, the foundation, obviously, the rule provides you can ask the objecting party what's lacking. Well, if I think if the if the responding party can ask that, I don't think there's anything wrong with the courting not asking it. And frankly, I'd say at least 50% of the time I've had an attorney object based on foundation, I have no idea why they think the foundation's lacking. So if I can't figure it out, I wouldn't expect anybody else to figure it out either. So I think it's perfectly okay for me to ask. Yeah, there's another consideration, I agree uh, uh, with Carl. Uh, it's what we heard a lot of uh, this morning, this concept of, you can't get legal advice, but you can certainly share legal information with the self-represented litigant. And uh, to follow up on what George was saying, as a member of the commission for several years, I think this is true, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we never disciplined a judge for giving too much legal information to a self-represented litigant. So, um, as far as I'm concerned, you can err on that side. It's a matter of perception, uh, how you phrase what you say to the parties, and uh, if you do it in the, in the guise or the form of, here's what one side needs, or here's what you need to prove for each part of your case, uh, you're simply educating them and giving them legal information. You're not telling them how to do it. And I might add what I, I mean, Rule 614, we'll talk about, I think, in a later scenario, but it does give you the right to ask questions. But anytime I intervene, uh, I don't do it as, you know, not taking over the, the, the case, but rather uh, always give the opposing party or opposing party's counsel an opportunity to follow up with questions after I've asked questions. I don't, I don't stop there and say, you know, okay, this is where we're going to move forward. And that at least gives the perception, again, of giving another opportunity. What I wanted to add is I think everybody has had this um, happen to us one time or another, maybe several times. And my question is, what happens if you don't intervene in any way with this case? I think you should ask yourself what's going to happen um, and exactly the part about questioning, I, I don't know if you're, if you're wanting to defeat the objection. The uh, mindset has to be now is that how are we going to help in some way to uh, help um, the, litig the litigant understand what they're ac actually asking and to participate with that because maybe that is, maybe we'll get the answer that way. But I think it disturbs me a lot is that this happens a lot and we didn't ask any other questions. So what happened to the case? Well, if, if I may, if I, I can ask you a question in this regard, obviously very scenario-based, but that is he talks about, of course, it going over the line with the, the questioning from the judge, and I understand there's a role for the judge to play in asking these questions, but if you have, for example, a plaintiff's case that you think is perhaps marginal at best as far as them having actually met their burden of proof, and you turn to the defendant and you tell them, now, 
as you might remember from when we began these proceedings, I told you, you don't have to testify. Um, it's not that it's your right to not testify, it's just you don't have to say anything if you don't want to, but understand, sir, if you don't, I'll make my decision having heard from one party, and while you may feel they haven't met their burden of proof, I may not share that opinion. So if you want to say something, now is the opportunity to do it. Okay, fine, we've opened the door, and now maybe you get something from the defendant in the way of, and they'll typically clam up, but you might get something that's really not too terribly helpful, such as, and it's a civil case, of course. Well, judge, I just didn't do it. Well, that really hasn't produced much that's helpful. So you might go the extra step to say, well, sir, now what exactly do you mean by you didn't do it? Now you get something that is actually more enlightening. They actually decide to expand upon it. And they'd say, well, I meant I didn't do it. I didn't do exactly what he said, but I did do this. And now you have an admission that might actually speak to the plaintiff's case here. The plaintiff probably, in your opinion, hadn't really met much of a case, but now you've got essentially an admission from the defendant. Well, I, yeah, I did indeed do that. All I'm trying to say is, yeah, I'm sure this is very specific, but does it cause you any concern at some point in time of saying, yeah, you know, even if you're not doing anything that actually could be, that could compel testimony and somebody to admit to something, you can take this too far where somebody's going to say, oh, geez, there's a man around the moon in the black robe up there, and they're asking me questions. I guess I need to start asking, or I need to start providing some answers. Why don't we move on to scenario number four? <laughs> and uh, so this is an unrepresented petitioner and defendant at a harassment injunction hearing, which somehow has reached you with only one alleged act of harassment. During testimony, plaintiff alleges a clearly supportive act that was not in the petition, and the defendant does not object. Should you ask the defendant if she objects? If, she uh, if the defendant objects, do you proceed? What are the advantages of allowing exploration of such issues? What kind of information about the right not to have issues expanded should litigants be given? What kind of waiver of rights should be required before the case goes beyond the scope of the hearing? allow the plaintiff to introduce new allegations at a contested hearing. It violates due process. The defendant has a right to know what charges the defendant was supposed to be facing and to prepare for those. And to then say, well, we'll let the plaintiff introduce something else allows the element of surprise and without giving defendant any notice. So I think you can't do that. I think you can tell the plaintiff petitioner plaintiff in this case, um, that the original petition is insufficient for an injunction against harassment because there need to be two acts. And people can go down and file new petitions. But the defendant has a right to be apprised of those. And I don't think you can simply rule on the original one and allow an in-court amendment without violating due process. Aren't there a, a lot of uh, 
isn't there a lot of background information already available in a lot of these areas as to what are the elements of uh, a particular petition to prove the case? So uh, there's a lot of good legal information, and that is disseminated widely, I think. Uh, and so if you get into just explaining, well, these are the uh, things that need to be established, I don't see anything particularly wrong with that. It's just general legal information. Uh, but I mean, you can't help a, a plaintiff prove their case. So I think the more information that is available on the internet, and by pamphlets, by self-service centers, uh, I think that's, that would be a point of, uh, of attacking. Can we back this question up to the initial appearance? And quite often I've seen petitions uh, for these IHs that are missing the, the second harassment incident. Is it appropriate at that point in time in the initial ex parte hearing to question the petitioner about are there any other incidences? I cannot issue this on a single incident. Well, but I guess my point was that for them to have the petition, wasn't there some background information that was provided, an information pamphlet that explains the elements? I, I would assume so. No? The, the petition no. itself. In an ideal world, yeah. yes, but <laughs> the practical reality of it is, you know, they may print it off the internet, they come in, they, they hand it to the clerk, the clerk stamps it, it comes upstairs. Yeah. So how do you handle that? I, I, I can tell you, I used to do that all the time. I don't think there was anything wrong with saying, and I usually try to do it in such a way that I'm not sort of coaching them or coaxing them or, you know, I kind of ask it as just an open-ended question without reference to the legal standard. So if there's just one thing alleged, I'll ask about what happened and what that was and I'll say, well, was there anything else? Did the person do anything, you know, anything at all? And if they go, oh yeah, there was that time, you know, came after me with the, the butcher knife, but, you know, what's that compared to this yelling at me? And I'll go, okay, well, and I'll explain them what the legal standard is. And I'll, I'll have the, I'd have them, you know, I'll say, because I'm inclined to issue this based on those two incidents, you're going to need to put in the petition. And I'll put it in the petition. The, the key here is to make sure the copy of the petition that goes to the defendant is the amended copy of the petition. We had an issue with that when we went paperless in Mesa, where the, you know, the one they'd modify in the courtroom, what was going out to the, to the defendant, and that caused some notice problems. Um, so I think it's okay to do it that way. Um, if they just say, oh no, nothing, absolutely nothing ever happened, and I'd say, well, I'm sorry, because there has to be a series of harassing acts, and then they say, oh, but there's this other thing. If I didn't believe them, if I thought they were just making it up because now they know they're not getting one, I'm sorry, I'd say, I'm sorry, you're, you were not alleging that. You just swore to me under oath that, that, that there was one incident based on the one incident. I'm not granting I think you can do that. But unless I, unless I really, really am persuaded that they're not being truthful about it, you know, they're under oath. I'm not an investigator. I'm going to have to kind of presume what they're telling me is the truth, and I'd let them put it in because I don't know that it makes much sense. They know I'm not going to grant you this one. They go downstairs, they pull a new file, they pay a new filing fee. It's got the very next case number on it, and then you're going to sign it. I guess I'm a little conflicted about this because um, the purpose for us being here is because. We want to make it easier on people who don't represent themselves. So I've always been mystified. I mean, you know, I'm not on the appellate court, so what do I call? I'm, I'm very mystified about this whole thing about well, the, the petition has to say that there are two incidents, or else, you know, even though we have a contested hearing, and the defendant's there, the defendant doesn't object to the 
imperfection in the petition. Uh, the defendant, in fact, never denies the allegation of the second incident, uh, where we're going to say, oh, sorry, uh, case dismissed, you, you didn't do the petition right, because, well, you know, they, I'm assuming, let's assume that they had a good faith basis for coming into the court that day to get the court's protection against the person who was, you know, committing a series of acts that would be a reasonable person to be seriously alarmed. And for whatever reason, they only wrote one down. And maybe the one they wrote down could be interpreted as a course of conduct, a series of acts that, you know, maybe it adds up to one and a half and not two. I uh, mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably, I got to be honest, if I hear two acts, there's no objection, I'm going to sustain the order and have the defendant sign his right to appeal and explain to him that he can do that, or she, and let the chips fall where they may. Well, I am on the appellate court, and, <laughs> <laughs> and what I've got to say is that we're not on the firing line like you all are, and having to deal with these uh, situations that on the fly. And so I appreciate the fact that it's very difficult. The particular case that uh, is referenced in the, um, in the scenario, if I remember that one correctly, involved a situation where uh, at the time of this contested uh, hearing, um, the, I think it was the wife came in and not only had additional um, instances of conduct that she that she wanted to verbally raise, but she also wanted to expand the nature of the order of protection to uh, to include the child. And so, as a matter of, of due process and notice, what I think the the appellate court was saying is, look, what you need to do is, number one, yes, the petitioner can amend uh, her, her petition, but you need to give the defendant the opportunity to not only understand what those charges are, but to prepare to address them in a subsequent hearing. And I think that's what the Sabbath case was all about. Wouldn't the situation need to be analyzed as an abuse of discretion, uh, as kind of a legal proposition? As to ethics, you know, you're supposed to follow the law. And if the law requires to, and you are ignoring the law intentionally, I mean, I think that could lead you to a, a, a claim of unethical conduct, this uh, knowing disregard for the law as opposed to an abuse of discretion as to whether or not you did feel legitimately that there were two instances, uh, that sort of thing. So it can get a little tricky. Uh, but, you, I mean, I think the whole exercise here is that, you know, you're administering justice, but you can't think that parties the case for them. Uh, and, and it isn't very uh, easy, as many of these uh, scenarios indicate. Well, one of the things that uh, Judge Harris said, I may have slipped by here, but you know, there's no race judicata 
or collateral estoppel on this. And as she said, uh, and there's no limit until you can come back. And then you know, the last question is, what do you do? Uh, and it, before that, it says, you're truly concerned the defendant poses a threat to the plaintiff. You know, it would seem to me that telling the, the petitioner, you know, you're not going to get this one, but you have a right to submit a, a, an application or petition for another. Also, just for, for your information, uh, there's a major change in the Arizona Rules of Protective Order Procedure at the Supreme Court's Rules Committee meeting uh, in August. And, uh, and that's, uh, that, that, you should take a look at it. It'll become effective on January 1st, 2016. Uh, but it's, I think, a, a, an overall uh, easier flow. Uh, the rules don't have uh, numbers of subparts like they used to, but they're separated out. I think they did, I think, uh, said they did a nice job of course, I just want to add to, I think it makes more sense that when you're doing a order of harassment that um, from the beginning you would hate for them to come back and then find out that it's going to be dismissed because you don't have to incidents that happen. So I think that's what we're talking about today is to take the time out to find out if there is two incidents, keep on talking to them because for the most part, sometimes they can't think of things to say. They forget, they're afraid, they're coming into the court for the first time getting a harassment. They don't know what's supposed to happen. Our forms say what they should be putting on there, but you know, there's a lot of people that don't read and they don't write. So somebody helps them and helps them come in and they just say, go ahead and put that. That's one thing. But as you, many times it's happened to me where they had several incidents because I, I had to ask them and keep it. You have to pull things from people sometimes. And um, I was able to get the information that they needed. But I have never given a harassment if it's only one time. We have to explain to them. Um, now, it has been one time that, or several times, that they only put one thing on there and I had to go back and redo it because there were two or three incidents that happened. Then at least we know the order was given. But for us not to take out the time and ask those right questions so they can, uh, they have the answers. If, if, if they don't, well, you're not going to give it. And it's just our obligation is to take time to listen and to try to get some of that information. I'm not sure it's a question, but when you look at the, the facts, the way they're set out in the scenario, the ball got dropped somehow, pretty clearly. Uh, so the first thing you would do is look down and say, did I do this? Oh no, it was some uh, pro tem uh, initial seal. Or if you're in a consolidated court, well, it was a character down the hall and dropped the ball. But usually, the way these things play out, uh, when you're listening to a series of facts to uh, justify the uh, harassment order in the first place, um, the, the person you know, writes it out and then you listen to what they have to say. Now, when, you're, when they write out what looks like a single act, but when they describe it, well, the single act was about two hours long, and, and it really was kind of a series. That's a possibility. The other possibility is there was only one act in the, in the petition, and then the uh, petitioner then asked or brought to your attention a totally separate act on another occasion that's not a continuous um, course of conduct, if you will. 
Um, I think the easiest solution at that point in time, and of course we're going back now, is say, all right, I'm going to ask you to write in, in hand, um, that new act and then put your initials after it. So that would have eliminated the problem from the get-go. Okay, now we're in this hearing, and uh, I realized for the first time that I dropped the ball or somebody dropped the ball, and there was only one act alleged, and now they've given us a second good valid act. I don't see anything wrong with asking the defendant, do you object? And he or she says, uh, well, yes, I do. This changes everything. I wasn't prepared to defend against that. Um, then, you know, then you've got to do what you've got to do because uh, the ball was dropped and you didn't catch it in time. Uh, there's another alternative. I'll give you a little time. You know, if we can amend this um, and, uh, you know, if you don't object, if you're really not surprised by this, um, then we can go forward. Or if you want to come back, you know, we can do another order. But you want to let them know that this doesn't mean you win. Um, this just means that it's put off for another day. And if that's what you want to do, it's fine. The, uh, the only other thing I'd add to that that was, that was good is that like, the case that's referenced in the, uh, in the scenario, and I should, should have known this since I was on the panel, uh, had to do with uh, uh, an allegation by, by the mom directed at the husband that the husband had knowledge of the fact that a child's stepbrother was supposedly sexually abusing the child. And uh, of course, under the law or protection, unless there's evidence that the husband was personally intimidating or harassing the wife. She's not entitled to an order of protection against it. She came into the hearing and then made new allegations against the husband that he was, in fact, intimidating and harassing. And that it implicated the positive rate indicator firearm issue. And so the appellate court said, under this scenario, the father was entitled to notice of these allegations that would trigger right to defend this, and therefore uh, it was care for the trial court to proceed and grant the order of protection. And I think that kind of ties into the second part of the question where, you know, you're still, you're really concerned though that there's a real threat here. There's only one act alleged, but you think there's, there's a potential for danger here and there's a threat and that sort of thing. So your instinct, just as, you know, a human being is, I want to do what I can to make sure that people are protected. Um, you know, if, if the law doesn't allow you to do that in this context, then you can't do it. You can't fix every problem just because you've got a black robe on. There's nothing wrong with you saying in a certain circumstance such as that one, well then ma'am, maybe what you should do is you might want to make a, a report to the Department of Child Safety. You may want to pursue some type of proceeding through juvenile court, i.e. a dependency, you know, one of those kinds of things. There are, there are other alternatives in, uh, you know, to issuing that particular order that they're asking you to issue. And there's nothing wrong with advising them of, of, without giving them legal advice or telling them they should do it, you can let them know that there are other resources or other avenues to pursue relief. I don't think there's anything unethical about that. George, would you agree? Well, I, I'd be interested in uh, Commissioner Harris's uh, prior comment about due process. I think you'd have a concern about the due process rights of the defendant, would you not? I have a couple of concerns. First, um, one is we seem to be confusing the orders of protection with the injunctions against harassment. 
because in the IAHs, which is what the scenario was, we don't have issues about the parties, children, and the, relate, the same marital relationship or familial relationship that you find. So typically, in your IAH cases, are between two non-related parties, like next door neighbors or whatever. If you have that same concern, that concern can be alleviated simply by having plaintiff go down, fill out a new IAH petition alleging two acts, and having defendant served. You could even state there and say if, you know, defendant's amenable to getting served in the courtroom, perhaps, or not. I tend to not like to do that because I think that when the judge interferes that way, and then a court asks the defendant, do you waive your rights? There's almost an element of coercion, particularly for unrepresented defendants who have no more knowledge than the unrepresented plaintiffs necessarily. And so when somebody with a black robe sitting up there says, you don't know what you do you? Me, in my role of defendant who's never been in court before, is going, oh, no, I don't have to do anything you say, Judge. Sure, because I'm afraid to say anything else. And so I feel an element of coercion. That's why I would say to tell the parties, they, you know, plaintiff, you didn't beat it, you need to have two elements by law. You need to have two acts by law. If you have two acts, you go down, you fill out a new petition, you come up, you have an ex-party hearing, and you get the guy or the lady or whoever it is served a second time. And then, defendant, once you've been served, you can ask for a new hearing. Okay? We'll set a new hearing for you. You have the right to have counsel if you want them. But I think the defendant has a right to know these things and not get surprised. Because maybe with the second allegation, they would have said, oh, you know, this is a lot more serious. This could affect my job. This could affect my job. I think that's a signal to move on. <laughs> <laughs> Is the, does the complaint have that she wants HOA fees? Uh, but the most important is to have the lease and um, in front of you saying that, you know, I'm confused about the fact that they would be paying HOA when it's rental um, first. Uh, I would not say we would go to trial. The other alternative is, is that um, I'm going to give you the two months if that's what they owe and they can show that they owe the two months um, probably uh, or any 
uh, fees as far as the court cost or any um, late fees. But if there's no lease, I probably will not go and give late fees. Uh, and let them know that the alternative would be that they could come back and file for HOA fees with a civil case or a small claims. to set the eviction trial in two or three days and tell them to bring the lease. Can you, in that scenario, 
What resources can you can you have the, the, the plaintiff avail themselves of? Are there court resources we can reach out to? Are there rescheduling things we can do where we get additional resources in there to assist, or is that or is that exceeding our authority? Well, I, uh, Judge Winter probably can respond as the chair of our Access to Justice Commission. Um, but this is the sort of thing we're working on right now. Uh, under Judge Carrillo's direction, uh, one of the subcommittees, with uh, the forms and possible, uh, we're working on, Judge McMurray is helping with a video that we're putting together on this issue. So I think we're, we're in the process of trying to provide education for particularly self-represented tenants, but you know there are obviously situations like this with self-represented landlords who need the information just as well. So. Um, did I hear you volunteering, maybe, to help us with this? I'll check, maybe. I got up work lately. <laughs> okay, we want to get to some of these others, but let's uh, keep going. Okay, we're going to switch to traffic limits. Okay. The self-represented litigant appears with a citation with the following charges. Exhibition of speed, criminal charge. Violation of license restriction, criminal charge. Red light violation, expired registration, equipment, headlights, all civil. Defendant wants to plead guilty, responsible to everything, so she doesn't have to return to court. You know very well that your prosecutor, who's not there doing the pretrial conferences that day, will make a very reasonable plea off the defendant, including dismissing several of the civil charges and possibly reducing the criminals to civil. Should you let this defendant plead guilty today? Should you offer a pretrial conference? How strenuously? Do you advise the consequences of the red light violation? Which, by the way, because you don't know, is automatic uh, traffic survival school by MPD. Let me just make a pitch for the bench book. Um, you know, we have a number of you in the room and 90 around the state who review the scripts of every type of proceeding that you have. And uh, if you follow that script, you're, 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 you're going to avoid some of this. For one, having the defendant admit everything on the record before you even have an opportunity to tell them they don't have to do that. They don't have to say anything and explain what the risk is and give them a warning about that. So, to, you know, I, I know that uh, every year we've all been through the training and uh, you know, people have some reluctance to follow the script, to, to you know, appearing as though they don't know what they're doing because they have to look down and read a script. Um, but as I say so often, you're going to more likely give the impression you don't know what you're doing if you're not following the script. And you, you get off base and you go, oh gosh, I should have warned you about that. And we're on the record and anything you can say can be used against you. What you've already said, yeah, I'm guilty for, of all of these. So, so just... You know, at a minimum, follow the script. Yeah, but now I'm going to double down on part of this question at least, okay? She's charged with criminal and also civil charges, but she tells you she wants to plead guilty because she does not want to have to come back to court again. Are you going to take that guilty plea? And this happens all the time.
I have found this to happen in my court, and I don't tell them what they should do. I simply say, it may be in your best interest to go see the county prosecutor and see if you can't come to a successful resolution of the issues that are before you. They can amend, modify, dismiss. I cannot. If you plead to me today, I am your worst nightmare. Are you sure you don't want to see the county prosecutor? <laughs> When we take a plea, one of the last things that we do is we get a basis back for the offense charge. So when they come in and they say, I'm just doing this so I don't have to come back, that is not a basis in fact. I reject their plea. I'm going to plead not guilty on their behalf and send them to the county attorney. In response to Judge McMurray's question or comment, um, I think part of what he's getting at here is you have some issues with whether this is ex parte. First of all, it's clearly an ex parte proceeding because there's, your prosecutor's not there. Um, can you conduct it? I think as long as the prosecutor knows you do your arraignments on whatever X day is for criminal cases, and they say that's fine, Judge, we're not staffing it, they've waived their appearance and you can proceed. And I think you can take pleas even on criminal charges under those circumstances, and I think you can impose sentencing, provided there are no victim issues. I think it's the, it's the prosecutor's obligation. If they know that that's what you're going to end up doing, if they choose not to appear, then they waive their presence. We used to have this come up a lot. Um, and it's kind of frustrating because I think all of us would prefer to have the prosecutor there at all the proceedings just for this very type of scenario. But I think you, I think you ethically can do it as long as the prosecutor had noticed that you would, you would be handling cases that way and not setting everything off regardless of how the person pleads. In terms of the, the scenario and the, some of the questions that are posed there, I would I don't think there's anything wrong with saying you understand it may be to your benefit to have this set for a pretrial conference. It's not uncommon for the prosecutor to make you some type of an offer where some of these may be dismissed in exchange for your plea to others. I wouldn't get any more specific than that. You need to be very careful. I would never say something like, the prosecutor will always do this, or this is what the prosecutor does. Because for all you know, unbeknownst to you, you know, this person has 84 prior convictions for you know, excessive speed, and the prosecutor is not going to offer a thing to this person. So I, I would just keep it sort of open-ended in general like that. And if they're insistent that they want to plead, because they don't want to have to come back to court and they're just adamant about it. If I didn't have any reason why I thought it was improper or unethical for me to take the plea, I'd take the plea and I'd assume you may provide the factual basis for it. You know, our job here is to make sure people get justice, that they're treated fairly, that they're informed, and that in terms of self-represented litigants, making sure there's sort of an evil, even playing field and that sort of thing. It doesn't go so far as to A, be their lawyer, or B, save them from their own poor decisions necessarily. So I think as long as you've kind of done those things, you're in, you're in, a, in good shape. Can you reject it and say, no, I'm just not going to take it? You can, but keep in mind, you may not really be helping the person by doing that either. You know, if it's, I don't want to come back because if I miss work one more day, I lose my job and I can't feed my kids, they may be better off with you taking that plea that day. What about a scenario where uh, one of the charges is not on the bond schedule, so you have no idea what the, what the typical penalty would be, and you have no input from the county attorney because they're not there? 
Well, if it's a civil, presumably, if you're talking about the bond schedule, it's a civil violation. Well, even if it's, even if it's criminal, okay. maybe one of the ones that, that's just uncommon and there's no, no difficulty about that. To you are not tied to the bond schedule. Um, you can impose any you can impose any sentence that's a lawful sentence for civil traffic violations unless something specified different. It's 250 plus surcharges and fees for the different classes of misdemeanor. It's whatever the range of penalty is for that misdemeanor. Okay, we have 15 minutes left. Let's move on to number seven. No, let's move on to number nine. We have a lot of uh, hearing officers here. Okay, we're going to run out. So, um, number nine. Defendant, the self-represented defendant makes it very clear in his opening statement that he was the driver of the vehicle as he vehemently complains about the officer not being very nice. The officer forgets to identify the defendant as the driver during his case in chief. So the defendant made something clear in his opening statement, but now the officer has testified and has failed to identify the defendant as the driver. Should you ask the officer to identify the driver? Or can you just dismiss? I may not be all that familiar with the way these proceedings go, but I'm guessing that, that before anything starts in this proceeding, various witnesses are sworn. And the fact that the self-represented defendant is being acknowledged he was the driver to me is probably sufficient uh, to, be, to prove the evidentiary basis. Please, you, and I hope, because you're on the court appeal, you may not know, but there is no prosecutor here, okay? It's the officer who is a witness and sort of is the state, but it's not really the state. So it's kind of a strange hearing. It's a civil hearing. Well, again, my initial take is that the defendant's made an admission that satisfies uh, that element. And even if it's about, that's, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You know, I, I think this is a, a good example. Uh, thanks for putting that one in here. That uh, you know, um, there are elements that are required to be proven uh, even in civil matters, and this is one of them. It's a fundamental element. So, um, you know, it, it, it has seemed to me over the years that um, judges at the higher level courts, and I'm not referring to the Court of Appeals or Judge Winthrop, but at the Superior Court. Um, for whatever reason, are are less concerned about inquiring about and even helping to establish identity uh, than I am as a limited jurisdiction court judge. Uh, and so this is what I have decided, and some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, you, you know, typically when you go in as a civil traffic hearing officer, you uh, you, you follow the script. Follow the script. It, it's sort of designed to assist the the the. the the person who's been charged with the offense in understanding what the procedure is. But as Judge Murray said, you have an officer there who's a witness. He's not an attorney. Uh, maybe he or she has done it a jillion times. But nonetheless, they don't know me. And, uh, and so I just tell them, look, I mean, this goes for, for everybody here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the state to its responsibility of establishing all of the elements. And I may even read what the citation is. And in uh, that way, I feel better about not providing any kind of direction to, well, were you the person driving? Well, you know, I didn't really hear the identification. Judge Carrillo, would you ask the officer to identify the driver? No, I wouldn't. You just dismiss? I dismiss. Got it. 
the second, but, but the second part of that question was, what if you're not quite sure if the officer identified the driver because you've done so many of these today, your mind might have been wandering. <laughs> Judge Carrillo, would you examine I don't do them enough. <laughs> well, I, you know, unfortunately, as you get older, this does happen. And, uh, you know, I'll just take a moment and I'll say, you know what, I, 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 need, a, I need a second. And uh, so, you know, I'll go into the other room. Maybe there's somebody there that's with me in the court and say, you know what, I didn't hear uh, this. You know, maybe I can listen back on the record for you know, for any comment that was made, that might take too long, but uh, you do begin to question yourself, and I suppose you then are put in a position of having to ask if you don't remember, and that's on you and not on them. And then, Mr. Reamer, do I have an obligation to report myself? <laughs> I've uh, mentioned this before, sure. there's no sure. self-reporting requirement. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you feel real guilty and you want to throw yourself at the mercy of the commission. But I, I did want to uh, raise an issue that, kind of a theme here, is, you know, the inconsistent, uh, incons potential inconsistency of how you all deal with these things. So, so one, one, one person's good intentional discretion is another person's arbitrary action. And I think Paul's comment, and I, I believe there's lots of scripts. Uh, and the scripts, I think, are, are great, as are the development of best practices and the continued refinement of that. But then I think on the counter side, you kind of then question, well, are, are you all supposed to just be like judicial robots? Uh, no, I, you know, I mean, I think you are uh, elected and selected to exercise your judicial, best judicial discretion. So it, it's a tough topic to know, you know, if I go to court X, you know, I'm going to get the, the judge not asking the question. If I go to judge uh, another court, why the judge is going to help or help or perceive to be helping the officer, and I get a different result. And so I think the public is troubled by that. I, you know, one thing I do now, absolutely every time, no matter what the case is, I write it down. You know, identification, vocation, all those. You know, that acronym you use. Just one one question about this, and that would simply be. Your thoughts on the argument, though, and that is, if in a civil traffic hearing, it's appropriate for the hearing officer or for the judge to do a certain amount of engagement with the self-represented defendant, which appears 99% of the time self-represented, to ask them, tell them what the options are. They don't say much. You can tell them it's your turn to testify, and you might have a couple of questions to ask them. If you're supposed to remain completely neutral in this process, though, is it not also appropriate to at that same point apply the same standard to the state, and that is to say to the officer, if you need to establish identity, and that was simply perhaps an oversight on their part to ask, is that individual in court? And then it's up to them to then say, well, yes, as a matter of fact, the party is seated at the defense table and so on and so forth. Well, that's why I think it's important that regardless of which side you're asking the questions of, you're not making their case for them. Uh, questions should really be more a clarification rather than filling in essential fundamental elements. So, you know, if the officer went, yeah, that guy over there was driving, and kind of nods his head, I think it's okay to say, now you said that guy over there, are you referring to the defendant? I don't see a problem with that. But I think if, you're, if there's just nothing there, and you're just asking the question to 
establish essentially or find out whether there's a basis for an element or not, then I think you stepped over the line. Okay, so uh, the officer has remembered to identify the driver, but the self-represented defendant says he had no insurance at the time, but the officer was too mean to him and didn't give him enough time to find it. He says he has his insurance today, but he doesn't want to show it to you because he doesn't think he believe he doesn't believe he should have to. <laughs> and this actually happened. This actually happened. I think you just advised of the consequences, including a $1,000 fine and the suspension of his driver's license unless he shows it. Last one that we have time for, uh, this is scenario number seven, a default judgment. The defendant is unquestionably personally served in a credit, uh, credit card case brought in the name of the original credit company. The plaintiff has filed for entry of a default judgment without a hearing and has attached supporting documentation and affidavits for a sum certain. Are you required to grant a default judgment without a hearing? Should you look for affirmative defenses and are you required, required to do so? Now, understand, panel, this has been very carefully crafted. We've stayed away from the um, controversy over portfolio and the uh, debt, debt buyers that have been had a consent judgment entered against them. This is a uh, first. This is brought in the name of the original credit companies. We don't have that issue, and we have a default judgment applied for that's got supporting documentation. And there, it shows us a clear amount. Are you are you required to grant a default judgment? Under the rule that's cited, it's discretionary. Correct. Should you look for affirmative defenses? Like statute of limitations. I think what you're you're required to look for is whether the evidence presented supports the granting of judgment. In other words, um, is, is the information, the affidavit, sufficient to do it? If you decide to proceed in that fashion, the evidence does not support the granting of the judgment or the conditions that are contained in the judgment they, they give you to look at, then you don't have to. If I might just make reference to scenario 13, which is a, another uh, similar example, but related to a motion for summary judgment. And the answer there is, is absolutely not. Uh, you don't get a default motion for summary judgment just because the opposing party does not respond. The, the, the moving party still has to prove their case. And, uh, so I think that just an extension of what Judge Winter was saying, but that's a that's a very important point. There was a court of appeals case Judge Swan wrote, and we wrote that into the rules of civil procedure for our, for our justice court proceedings. Okay, what did what did we decide about uh, asserting affirmative defenses? What what do we know about affirmative defenses? Give, give them. Okay, by who? By defendant. Or? 
all well-pled allegations of the complaint are deemed admitted. But you, this is not so simple. I mean, there, there are, you have to be careful I mean, how far you, you decide to get into this. I mean, I, I've talked with some of you for years about uh, certain things, you know, whether or not in the contract, which is attached to the complaint, there's mandatory arbitration. You know, and here you are in court. Or, uh, you know, you, you have a feeling that the, the sale of the vehicle wasn't reasonable. And uh, you know, but you are, is that your job or not? These are hard questions, and uh, I would encourage you to talk to each other, Charles and Judge McMurray and Judge Williams and others, uh, about some of these issues that come up for you. All right, I think it's time to wrap it up. One more, one more. I want to jump back to the previous scenario very briefly um, on the sort of traffic. If you have a situation with the the officers testify, um, they've you know, essentially rested, but they haven't established all the elements and it's about time for the defendant. Would it be appropriate at that point to say, well, you haven't established, you know, uh, instead of letting the defendant start speaking and possibly establishing the elements that the state has failed to establish? Is that appropriate? Or what about in the criminal context? The state has presented the case, has rested, and a self-represented defendant is allowed to start their case. Is it appropriate at that point to say, well, we don't have to say anything. They haven't established uh, beyond a reasonable doubt dismissed. Yes. Where does, where does the, uh, where, where should the judge? Well, the judge well in criminal cases, the rule, the rule is right on point. It says that the other party can do it or you can do it to a spot that you can essentially direct a verdict of acquittal at that point. But give the part of the state a chance to argue why you shouldn't. Um, but. It's pretty clear. I, I don't know that, I don't recall whether or not the civil uh, traffic rules have a similar uh, specific provision, but it is the state's burden to make that prima facie case, and if they haven't done that, I don't think there's anything at all wrong with, with just at that point, you know, finding out not responsible, that they've not, they've not met their burden once, once the state's arrested. One last mention about rules. As you probably have heard, uh, there are no longer rules of criminal procedure for criminal traffic. They've been abrogated. I, this is the first time that I remember it in my lifetime as a lawyer that this book may get a little thinner. <laughs> Just a little a page and a half. Throughout what it was, right? <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen of the panel, thank you very much. You have been helpful. I think this, it has illustrated the... Sorry, drop the gun. <laughs> illustrates the trickiness of this area that we're getting into. Uh, and we're going to have to work on it ongoingly, but I think it's a valuable uh, labor that we're undertaking, and you've helped us uh, focus on it. So thank you very much. And for your information, again, make sure you have your parking validated. For those of you uh, for CoCheck, it's going to be entered automatically for you. If you want a CLE certificate, let us know on your way out or shoot us an email and we'll get the CLE certificate to you. Thanks again for coming. Have a great day. Drive safe.